the crocodiles maneuver around them with surprising ease. They are intelligent hunters plotting their attack with precision. A strike can happen at any time. Dead will start a podcast. Name's Buck. I'm wearing Buck. Anyway, I sure ain't coming back to this place. Hello, everybody, and welcome to No More Room in Hell, number 29. I am Mike. Joining me, as always, it's Mr. Venom. What's up, Mr. Venom? Greetings and salutations, lovers of cold-blooded killers. Yes, I'm doing very good, Mike. How you doing? Doing fantastic, actually. It's uh, Everything seems to be going well right now, and fitting in movies. Got plans, and uh, man, it's... It's a good time, man. Not much to complain about recently, you know, considering, you know, we're still not quite out of the pandemic as a country or world or state, wherever you live. But uh, all things considered, going well, going well. All right. Oh, so joining us, it's Derek. How are you doing, Derek? I feel like Neville Brand at the end of one of these movies we're about to talk about, but, you know, I'm all right so far. (laughs) What, really dirty and sweaty? Yes. (laughs) And rapey. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as Derek has alluded to, Neville Brand is starring in one of the movies we're going to be talking about later. Uh, We're going to be talking Toby Hoover's Eaten Alive as well as Killer Crocodile from 1989. So a uh, couple couple Killer Crocodiles for our main features. Hopefully they'll be fun discussions. We'll see. <clears throat> the movies themselves, we'll also see about. But uh, we'll get to that much later. But uh, first, let's get a little catch up on what we've been watching. Venom, what have you watched since we last recorded? All right, I guess, um, let's see, I can talk about a movie that I actually discussed at length um, just recently on an episode of Cut to the Chase with uh, Dan Chase and Lacey Liu. That was for part of their Hitchcock retrospective that they're currently doing, and that is 1948's Rope. Um, this is, believe it or not, um, this is a bold statement for a horror movie fan, but yeah, Rope is by far my favorite Hitchcock movie. I absolutely love this movie, for those who don't know. Um, this is a movie that is basically, um, it's based on an English play, and the play is basically one location, you know, single set, uh, you know, type production. Uh, so for the film, Hitchcock basically did the same thing. He built just a single penthouse apartment type set 
and recorded the movie as if it was one long take. Now, obviously, because of, you know, because of the time period and the limitation on time for film reels, uh, they can only record or they can only film nine to ten minutes per reel. There are going to be some reel changes in there. Um, so it's not truly a one take film. Um, but it is still kind of considered that when you really watch it. And when you, like I said, when you think about the limitations of, you know, film, having to work with film, um, this is also Alfred Hitchcock's first color film, which is, uh, kind of a nice little piece of history. And you can very well tell that it is his first color film because the colors are so muted. They're nothing compared to what they, what his color schemes look like and stuff like North by Northwest, Vertigo, um, the birds. So Definitely an experiment for Hitchcock uh, in dealing with color. Uh, and the basic story of the film is um, it's a murder mystery that's not really a murder mystery, if you will. Basically, um, the movie opens with a murder. We actually see the murder, we see the victim, and we see the perpetrators. So that's not the mystery of the film. The mystery of the film is whether these two will get caught. These uh, the ringleader of the two uh, murderers basically considers himself like an ultra genius. And basically, this is their first attempt at getting away with murder. So, like I said, they kill their best friend in the, the opening scene of the film. And then the rest of the movie is basically a party that the killer decides to throw um, on the day of the murder. And again, this is just his way of being, you know, his hubris kind of taking over him trying to prove that he's the smartest man in the room to the point where the body itself is actually hidden in a chest right in the main room where all the party guests are going to be hanging out. So, yeah, this guy's definitely kind of looking for trouble. And then um, as far as name stars go, obviously Jimmy Stewart is going to be the big one that people take away from this. Um, you've also got John Dahl as Brandon, who, you know, kind of famously played a lot of bad guys in the 40s and 50s. And, and, and like I said, directed by Alfred Hayes. Hitchcock, uh, uh, written for the screen by Arthur's, uh, with an, with a treatment by Hume Cronin and Hume Cronin, of course, for those who aren't familiar with him, great actor, um, passed away in the nineties. He is, uh, best known for eighties films like Cocoon and Batteries Not Included. He always plays like these cute little, you know, older types, you know, kind of adorable old people. And, um, yeah, so, and he wrote the treatment for Rope, so go figure, you know, man of many talents. But, yeah, like I said, based on an English play, um, unfortunately, in the English uh, play of this, which was called The Rope's End, the two main characters, including one more character in the film, specifically uh, Jimmy Stewart's character, were actually homosexual, but unfortunately... Because of the time period, it's 1948 in America, they kind of had to bury all of the homosexual overtones or undertones, if you will, of the film. So, But it's still there. I mean, from within five minutes of the film, you see these guys getting really, really close to each other. Like literally their mouths are like an inch apart from each other as they're talking which is definitely kind of a trait. Um, from what I understand, it was a trait from the early part of the 1900s when men would get really close to you. It was kind of like their way of saying, hey, I'm gay, are you? So a little piece of uh, homosexual history there for you folks. But um, as far as the film goes, like I said, it is basically presented as a one-cut film. 
Um, there are 10 segments that are put together in the film. Like I said, they're all tied together so that it literally, the movie is literally in real time. So, um, and, you know, obviously I won't give away the ending, whether our two murderers got caught or whatever, how they may have been caught, things like that. Um, so I'll leave that up to you guys if you decide to watch it. But yeah, uh, as I've said, this is one of my favorite Hitchcock movies. The production of it is a big part of it. The fact that they were able to do these 10 minute long shots with these gigantic cameras, anybody who doesn't know. Um, the first color cameras back in the 40s were gigantic. They were like six feet tall. So for Hitchcock to be able to put together a set that isn't gigantic by any stretch, but still do long um, sequences in single shots where there's a lot of motion, too. It's not like people are just sitting around. The camera is actually moving a lot in this film. And like I said, once you actually see a picture of how big these cameras were, yeah, you just got to give it to these to this production, the crew. They did a stellar job with this film. Um, but yeah, um, have either of you guys seen Rope? Yeah, I seen it actually earlier this year, uh, or later, probably later 2020, because mm -hmm. you know that's all we were doing was watching movies then. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, it was the first time watching me, and I really dug the hell out of it. It was just very tense when, especially when that dinner, like the dinner party was happening, and you're like. Aren't they smelling dead body yet? You know, like, you know, I was thinking that and, you know, they're just serving it off the dead body, the food, and it's, right. it's very tense. It's kind of a tense story in that sense. And, you know, Jimmy Stewart playing Jimmy Stewart. Oh, hello there. How you doing? You got books for me to read? But it's definitely the most intelligent Jimmy Stewart I think I've ever seen. I mean, he comes off as such a brainiac in this one. Yeah. Uh, he's not massaging this Jimmy Stewart yet and later Hitchcock. <laughs> Well, ultimately, like I said, these characters were written as gay, including Jimmy yeah. Stewart's character of Rupert uh, Cadell. Yeah. So uh, obviously they had to bury that, uh, you know, for the American release. And ultimately, the movie was a flop. It was not a hit for Hitchcock. And uh, the writer, Arthur Lorenz, basically says that it was probably the homosexual undertones that just turned people off. Um, famously, Cary Grant was actually up for the role of Rupert that ended up going to Jimmy Stewart, but he turned the role down because he actually instantly caught the homosexual undertones and refused to play the character. So what's weird about that is Farley Granger was actually, I think he was inside at that time. I believe it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Cause he actually can't like, if you read about him, he was actually, he came out before like his death and shit, you know, like, right. uh, so the, the that's an interesting performance to watch. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And there are some great quirky characters in here. You get an older female character named Mrs. Atwater, who's just basically the comic relief for the film. Um, there's a couple of really funny conversations that were actually interjected by request of Hitchcock, because the original um, play, the original British play, had no humor in it whatsoever. It was a very serious film, or yeah. excuse me, a very serious stage production. Uh, Hitchcock didn't want to put out something that was that bleak, so he purposely requested some kind of humor in the in the film. And we get some really nice pieces of humor, mostly with Mrs. Atwater, but a lot with Jimmy Stewart as well. Um, and, and, of course, our two murderers, Brandon and Philip. So 
Um, this is yeah, this is a movie I can't recommend enough. So, Eric? yeah, yeah, yeah I, I definitely recommend it too. Mike hasn't seen it, I guess, since he hasn't said anything yet. <laughs> no, I haven't, but it sounds good. And Hitchcock's kind of one of those directors I kind of put up there with like a well, I don't want to say put up there. He is on the top of the mountain pretty much, but similar to how I feel about Kubrick, where it really doesn't matter the genre of movie he's making. Just I'm a fan of pretty much all his work. So um, this is definitely one I have not seen, but want to check out. Yeah. I mean, Hitchcock is easily the most influential director in, in cinema history. I mean, there's actually a genre of film named for him, Hitchcockian film. I mean, between him and Lovecraft, they're about the only people that actually have subgenres, you know, uh, dedicated to them. So yeah, I mean, Hitchcock is still influencing people to this day. Like, if you watch uh, the Creed movies, believe it or not, Creed uh, 1 and 2, a lot of the editing techniques utilized in the fights for that come directly from Hitchcock, from Hitchcock's editing style. So, yeah, to this day, Hitchcock is still, um, you know, influencing, you know, young directors. So, yeah, by far, probably, I mean, I can't think of any single director Kubrick maybe would be the one that comes the closest but even Kubrick has done a film or two that you know I was kind of lukewarm on if you will as opposed to Hitchcock where I've yet to see a bad Hitchcock movie so mm-hmm. all right uh Derek what do you got well what I got is uh nothing very Hitchcock in it all I got a <laughs> 1987 Mexican film Directed by, uh, let me say this right, because I want Ruben Galindo Jr. Yeah, uh, if you don't know that name, he, he's probably more famous for like directing films like Cemetery of Terror, and uh, he did uh, Grave Robbers too. And this one's Don't Panic. This is pretty much a Mexican slash. It's kind of like a, I guess there's Americans in this too. This one. So American co-production maybe because the, the main character is American. Uh, Don't panic, which is kind of like his version of it's kind of based off a nightmare on Elm Street in a way, but not really. Uh, pretty much the whole subplot is you know this new kid had moved with his mom to Mexico from America. Michael ends up uh, having a birthday party and a bunch of the kids that were at his birthday party actually break back into his house and be like, hey, you want to play with a Ouija board? So they do, and they awaken an evil spirit. The spirit <laughs> ends up possessing one of the teens that were at the party, and he's going off to kill everyone that was involved with the Ouija board. It's uh, And it's up to Michael to try to stop them because he actually gets like some supernatural abilities where he could actually see... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, premonitions of the murders, and he gets warned by actually a spirit of one of the damned already that this person's going to die next, go save this person. And it's kind of like a cool effect where his eyes turn like red, red, whenever he has these premonitions and thoughts and he goes into the premonition mode. It's cheesy, it's 80s, it's, it's kind of a cool little... If you... Uh, Mexican flavored of like the American slasher film, which a lot of the uh, Galanda Jr.'s films are like, like Cemetery 
or terrors, kind of like his love letter to Halloween. This one's definitely his love letter to Nightmare on Elm Street. And Grave Robbers is just bad shit. That movie's just nuts. And uh, these are all put out recently by Vinegar Syndrome on like 4K transfer Blu-rays. They look phenomenal. These films. Uh, uh, yeah, I actually watched this one twice because I actually watched this one with the commentary with the Hysteria Continues podcast. Also, uh, just you know, learning like the little things, and it's kind of cool that they bring up like since it's like a male protagonist movie, this one actually borrows a little bit more from Nightmare Two than Nightmare One. But uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting subplot, and you know, in the you know, it has a cheesy killer and then, you know it's fun it's a little fun piece of mexican horror that you know i'm glad that these movies are getting released over here yeah it sounds very fun i've never gotten to see it but i'm always down for spanish language horror so yeah i will i will seek it out yeah this one has a cheesy theme song too it's funny <laughs> don't panic. it couldn't be cheesier than terror vision don't panic <laughs> don't panic <laughs> it's sung by the lead the lead actor too it's Oh, then it has to be good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Um, for me, the first thing I got this is actually a TV show, not a movie. TV shows I don't really watch a ton of anymore, just due to lack of time. But uh, I was interested to check this one out. Um, it's Clarice, and anyone that's not familiar with that, it's based on the character of Clarice from Silence of the Lambs. It takes place a year after the events of Silence of the Lambs. So where we're at now, it's about three episodes in. Uh, the fourth episode's out, I just haven't watched it yet. And, you know, going into this, my biggest skepticism was like, well, Hannibal is great. How are you going to make it at least, you know, half as good as that? And uh, the answer is you don't. But that doesn't mean I don't like the show. It's 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 all right. I mean, I, I think the actress they got to play Clarice, she's really good. Um, she na- she's kind of nailed the part itself. Um, but you know, it's a little kind of like police procedural for my liking in a show. That's that's the biggest reason I liked Hannibal is because it it really strayed and avoided kind of that that TV programming format where it's like every week you got a case. And it gets solved or, you know, it was that kind of stuff in a detective show. This one, there is like a reoccurring uh, thing that they're trying to solve. But, you know, they, they've they kind of made the Clarice character, you, you know, the one that she always makes the right decision. She always does the right thing. And I felt like in the movie, the character was a little more nuanced. Some of the stuff she almost fell into out of her nuanced approach because she was so young on the force. And, uh, but otherwise, you know, it's pretty good. It's doing enough in its story to keep me on board. It's, you know, an hour show. So you're getting about 40 minutes of programming a week on it. That's, that's about, uh, enough to keep me going for now. We'll see where it goes. Um, but you know, I, I, I am liking it enough so far to keep going and we will see, where it continues to go, but uh, have either of you watched the show at all? No, nah, no interest. <laughs> Alrighty, well, <laughs> I love—I mean, I loves me some Silence of the Lambs, and I'll watch anything where Hannibal Lecter is the main character. But honestly, 
as much as I absolutely adore Silence of the Lambs, Clarice Starling is like the least interesting part of that entire storyline. You know, ultimately, you know, she's just a student. She's not even a full-fledged agent during Silence of the Lambs. So it's a minor miracle that she's even able to, you know, figure out. Capture James Gunn. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know. It's like a side story for either Hannibal or um, Buffalo Bill or even Migs. <laughs> I would watch a Migs show. Multiple Migs. Nothing against Clary Starling, nothing against Jodie Foster or the woman who plays her now. It's just, I, I just always found it to be the least interesting aspect of the original Silence of the Lambs and the book as well, because I have read the book. And yeah, same thing with the book. It's just, to me, she's an underwhelming character that got really lucky to work with, you know, basically the smartest man in the room to, to figure out a crime. So, eh, mm-hmm. she's cool, but yeah, I have no interest in that show, especially because it's not, I understand that it's not going to be a horror show. Uh, like, I figured it was going to be exactly like what you just described, you know, police p- procedural, you know, maybe every now and again, you might get a somewhat compelling, you know, serial killer or something like that, but eh, um, I don't know if it would be enough to keep me uh, watching, so, yeah. We'll see. I mean, if after the end of the show it somehow gets universal praise, then maybe I'll check it out. But as of right now, today's date, I have zero interest in seeing the show. Sorry to be so blunt. (laughs) Uh, No, no worries. All right. Well, then it's back to you. So what else you got? All right. Well, I'm going to come at this uh, right now with probably the most interesting, and I say interesting in quotation marks, the most interesting film I've seen in 2021. It is a brand new film, a 2021 film. And once you hear the title, you kind of know what you're in for. You know, no one's expecting the godfather of horror by any stretch when you hear a title like Cowgirls versus Pterodactyls. Yes. Uh, Written and directed by Joshua Kennedy. I mean, the title says it all. It's cowgirls. You know, uh, basically what ends up happening is one of the girls has her husband um, taken by a pterodactyl. And she basically just recruits this group of female, you know, uh, one's a gunslinger, one's a prostitute, one's a school teacher. She gets this menagerie of different women from this town together to go after these pterodactyls. Oh, man, this movie is a weird one because I I don't want to talk that much crap about it because it's one of those really bad movies that I think still has a lot of charm. And there's a lot of value to this film. It's definitely not in the pterodactyls. Unfortunately, the pterodactyls are stop motion animation, which in 2021, even in a cheap movie, stop motion animation looks really odd. So obviously, you know, whoever did the effects for this or or maybe Joshua Kennedy himself is a big Harry uh, Ray Harryhausen fan. But, yeah, I mean, this movie definitely looks nothing like something that Harryhausen would have put his uh, hands on. But like I said, ultimately, it has a little bit of charm. There's some funny moments. Um, The action is okay. I mean, it's laughable at times, but every now and again, it's somewhat compelling. So, I mean, you know, it's sitting on a 2.5 on IMDb currently. So that probably tells you everything you need to know. But I still say if you're a fan of, like, say, sci-fi originals, Sharknado-type movies, just movies that you know are purposely going for that 
kind of B-movie aesthetic, then Cowgirls versus Pterodactyls might be what you're looking for. It's only an hour and 15 minutes. It's a nice, quick runtime. You know, pacing is decent. Um, and you get you, you get some pretty attractive ladies to look at as well. I mean, even though this is like 1800s America, somehow they have these, you know, good-looking women with makeup and hair done and everything else. But, you know, suspension of disbelief. I mean, it is called Cowgirls versus Pterodactyls, so what can you say? Um, I, I, I don't know if either of you guys, I can't imagine either of you guys watch this film. I only watched it one day because I literally wanted to put something, I wanted to pad my 2021 numbers, but I didn't quite have 90 minutes to watch something because I, I think I had some UFC fights coming up or something. And I remember I only had like an hour and 20 minutes. So I was literally just looking for something that was 2021 that was under an hour and 20 minutes. And this is what I found. And I'm not going to say that I regret the time that I spent with it because at least I laughed a lot. Now, whether the laughing is ironic or because something is legitimately, you know, meant for comedy on the screen, eh, that's up to the viewer. But for whatever it's worth, it's a silly movie. It's quick. And if you got nothing better to do at all, I give it a mild recommend. <laughs> I want to watch it now. <laughs> That's right. I mean, it's it's easily not the worst thing I've even seen in 2021. Go figure. So, but it's still not great. Like obviously, um, but I think they did themselves a service by having that title on there because that title definitely lets 90% of movie audiences know basically what they need to know if they're even going to try this movie or not. So you know. Like I said, mild recommend. Check it out if you get bored. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right, Derek, what do you got up next? I actually watched a few episodes of a TV show, too, that I actually remember while you were talking about a TV show. So I'll bring that up. Uh, I've been checking out the South Korean show Sweet Home on Netflix. It's pretty fucking awesome. <laughs> Is it? I saw. I, I, I accidentally saw... A piece of a trailer, I mean, most people know I don't watch trailers, and if a trailer does come on and I realize that it's horror, I turn the channel instantly. Yeah. Um, but I did accidentally see a, a piece of the trailer for this, and it did look really interesting. I was I, I was kind of hoping to talk to someone who watched it first before I gave it a shot, but yeah. Yeah, I've only great. seen a few episodes, but yeah, it was pretty, pretty much it takes place in like this kind of like housing complex. That's the main area of the first few episodes that I've seen of this show where actually individuals and I don't think it actually has been revealed yet but some of them turn into monsters and there's like demonic forces at play and they're attacking the people and they're kind of like the survivors are trying to lock in and trying to barricade themselves against the damned that are outside and the the monsters and the effects are pretty fucking gnarly looking there's one person that has like this long elongated neck and big giant claws and shit and ripping people's heads off and shit. It's gory as all fuck. It's really great so far. Uh, I'm really digging the fuck out of it. I gotta finish that. I've been watching like an episode a day because they're like not too long too. So you, you, if you want something to watch one day at a time and stuff instead of binge it. Because honestly, I can't really binge like foreign shows like that anyways because it's a lot of reading. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, I can't you know. binge anything. I'm not good at binge watching. <laughs> yeah, me neither. I, you know, uh, but yeah, I've been enjoying it so far. I'm like three episodes in, so 
uh, going to ch- catch up with that the rest of that next week. So maybe you'll hear my final thoughts on the series as a whole at the end. Okay. Next yeah, episode. I know there's that series, and there was like the other one that dropped right around the same time. It was like some type of like Alice and not Alice in Wonderland, obviously, but it was Alice, like Alice in Borderland. Yeah, where like they get stuck playing some like true life video game or something, where like they're the pawns in it or something. Um, and I watched the first episode of that, and I thought it was pretty good. I just haven't got around to watching more, but yeah, I'm a horrible binger now too. <laughs> I just get bored really easy. I, I once I'm on like the second or third episode, it's like I just want to do something else, no matter how good something is. Like even something like The Mandalorian, as as much as I famously loved that series, especially season two. I, I couldn't binge the entire season. I just, like I said, I get bored. I either want to, you know, within a couple hours, I want to start playing a video game or I want to go play some poker online or something. Um, so, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, before the next episode, I'll definitely uh, start that, um, the uh, the series Derek was talking about. It sounds really good. And like I said, the piece of the trailer I saw did look really interesting. So, I'm yeah. sold. Yeah, I'm I'm happy with like doing the one episode a day type thing that keeps me yeah. still engaged enough, you know. I always wonder too, like when you binge something, how much of that are you actually retaining? You know, like if you're watching a ten episode series, and you know, let's say they're you know one hour episodes, that's ten hours of content you're taking in all at once. Are you really retaining a hundred percent of that information? I feel like you retain the information more when you watch it. Uh, day to day or week to week. You know oh, what I mean? Oh, like, don't get me started on that because my mom's been watching fucking that other show on Netflix known as Bridgerton over and oh. fucking over <laughs> again. Oh, shit. And there's a I lot of like fucking them sex scenes. Mm-mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of sex and people wearing wigs. It's and Julie Andrews. I'm Mary Poppins, y'all. <laughs> Yeah, I kind of think the same thing about binging, which is why I appreciate, like, Mandalorian and some other shows going back to, like, the old format of releasing an episode a week. All the Disney Plus shows are going to be one a week. Yeah, because then it's like everyone watches the same hour and everyone kind of discusses what happened in that episode. And then it gives you anticipation for what's coming next as opposed to, you know, attempting. And I, I totally agree when you're going through, like eight to ten hours of content like rapidly like that it's like how much are you retaining as opposed to just consuming yeah like exactly i mean think about i think about the phenomenon that wandavision was if we're we're week to week we would get like new information in the episodes and then for that week the biggest topic was whatever happened on wandavision you know you don't get that if they drop the entire season if they drop the entire season then people just talk about the last episode So I feel like it's definitely a disservice to drop the whole season at once, but, you know, teach their own. Yeah, I don't want to talk about One Division because I don't want to cry again. No, I hear you. Yeah, it got me too. (laughs) (laughs) That good, huh? I haven't seen it, but I think I'm going to actually pull the trigger on it because I've heard nothing but across the board praise for it. One Division is now the emotional heart of the MCU. I, I I feel very comfortable saying that right now. Yeah. It is easily, I mean, next to, even even with, you know, the end of Endgame, on the off chance that there's some caveman somewhere who hasn't seen Endgame, I won't say what the ending is. We all know what the ending is at this point, though. But it's like, even, like, e- the end of WandaVision st- was, com- was comparable to that, 
to the end of Endgame and the emotional content. And that's without having spent 10 years with Wanda either. We've only spent like, what, five, six years with this character. Yeah. And we'll still get that kind of series finale. Yeah. We're, we're spending too much time on WandaVision, but God damn it, it just ended. So yeah. it's fresh on everybody's mind. <laughs> Elizabeth Volson, she should get like an Emmy Award for that well, show. She was fucking amazing. If she doesn't amazing. get at least a nomination, there's something wrong. Yeah, yeah. and it's just for that last episode. Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, <laughs> enough superhero talk. Michael, Michael kick us off. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, my next thing that I'm going to bring up is one Venom you mentioned, I think... Where the hell did you mention it before? Was it on Fresh Cuts or 22 Shots? And you you spoke a little bit about it, but I hadn't seen it at the time. But now I have, so it would be Willy's Wonderland. Uh, this one, uh, I heard mixings going in. A lot of different opinions, a lot of varying opinions. But for me, myself personally, I actually had fun with it. And a little bit more so than I thought after everything I heard. Uh you know, it's it's a, a premise that uh, we probably saw before with the, uh, what was the one from last year? Banana Splits. Banana Splits. La, 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 la. Yeah, very similar. Uh, Nick Cage trapped in a place with animatronic animals that are alive, or they come alive and try to commit murder, which they do for the most part. But uh, Nick Cage... Yeah, they uh, get trapped in Nick Cage. (laughs) Pretty much. And uh, hilarity and violence ensues. Um, I, you know, I thought Nick Cage's character was cool in this. Um, And, you know, I was happy with it. It it wasn't... I would say it wasn't, like, as crazy and over the top as it could have been. But for what we got, I I was fine with it. It it was still a fun little movie. Uh, Venom, did you want to say some stuff on this? Because I know at the time you didn't want to say too Right, right, because it it was still potentially a Fresh Cuts candidate. So I didn't really want to get into it. But honestly... Um, I, I actually will be reviewing this movie tomorrow, actually, on one of my other shows, In the Mic of Madness. So for my full review on that, check out the next episode of that one. But uh, as far as just short and sweet, I love this movie. I absolutely loved it. I got exactly what I wanted to get out of it. I mean, you tell me that there's a movie where Nicholas plays, excuse me, Nicholas Cage plays a you know, mysterious man who has to do battle against possessed animatronic characters sold. I mean, that's all I need to know. And, and this is literally, this is, this is the sheer definition of a shut off your brain and just enjoy the movie at face value. You know, this movie has no subtext or, you know, social commentary. It's just a wild ride. I really enjoyed the fight scenes. I I thought they were really well done. Um, for a low budget movie like this, you know, nothing too on the radar as far as the mainstream goes. I thought the fight sequences were fun. I didn't get mad at the at the the younger characters in the movie. Derek knows how much I hate kids in movies from working <laughs> with me on the Kaiju podcast. Um, so yeah, it, you know, even the younger characters here did it for me. I was the only thing that bothered me was so much backstory. There was like four different flashback scenes of backstory that they could have kind of conglomerated into two. 
and still told the entire story. I understand why they split it up the way they did because they're building suspense and withholding information. Like with the first flashback, you only get part of the story. Um, kind of like recently for the film that we did on Fresh Cuts, uh, Blumhouse is the Vigil. Um, they did the same thing where the first time you see a flashback, you only get part of the information. And then later when we see the flashback again, we get the full flashback that gives us the information we were looking for. So I can see why they did it. But by the by the third or fourth flashback, I'm just like, oh, my God, <laughs> stop this. Get back to fighting. I just want to see Nick Cage fight animals. That's it. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I walked I walked away from this film absolutely loving it. Um, it's not. Citizen Kane by any stretch. It's a silly little film, but if you enjoyed the banana splits, I can't imagine there's a reason not to enjoy Willy's Wonderland. You gotta watch it still, so there's that. Yeah, it's fun. I liked it. Nice, nice. Hopefully yeah, we didn't talk it up too good. much, because, you know, it's objectively not a great movie. But, like I said, if if you go in with the right mindset, it's a 90-minute it's a the joyride. I mean, I, I absolutely love it. Even the first few minutes, that's just kind of set up and everything else. It's just the way that they set up uh, Cage's character and the way that they set up the scenario at Willie's Wonderland. It, it all just worked for me. You know, I never rolled my eyes once at any of the young characters because I tend to do that. Just get really frustrated or cringe when young characters do stupid things. But ultimately, I had a good time with this movie. Like I said, not Citizen Kane. <laughs> But uh, it's better than Maximum Overdrive. <laughs> oh. Oh. I'll die on that hill. I don't care. <laughs> I'm going to make you scared, Tim. All right. Yeah, all right. Venom, that's back to you. Um. Well, shit, you took my third movie. Um, oh, shit. I think... Uh, because everything on my 2021 list is stuff that we've gone over on uh, Fresh Cuts. Actually, here's one that we didn't do on Fresh Cuts. Um, this film is called Butchers. It was it, it released right after uh, the New Year. It was literally one of the first um, one of the first uh, horror movies released of the year. I don't know. I don't remember much about it um, as far as like director. Like I said, it was an independent film. Uh, let's see. Written and directed by Adrian Langley, um, starring Simon Phillips, Michael Swanton, Julie Mainville. No, nobody really of name. Um, but this is just kind of a cool, um, you know, crazy cannibal family in the woods type movie, uh, you know, very similar to Wrong Turn. Um not nearly as good by any stretch, but I did think that it was better acted than a movie like Wrong Turn. Um, I like the performances in Butchers. Once again, I didn't get really frustrated with it. Um, there's another movie very similar to this one that we did do on Fresh Cuts called Bloody Hell. Um, and that movie I, I thought was just a little bit better than Butchers, just, just because of the comedy aspect, because um, Bloody Hell is actually a horror comedy. Butchers, I don't, if I remember correctly, there was no comedy involved there. It was just straight, dark and serious subject matter. But again, good kills. It was gory. The antagonists were, uh, you know, twin brothers who were possessed by something. I'll leave it at that. But uh, yeah, a, a cool little a movie that kind of surprised me. Like I said, probably the first or second movie I watched this year. 
Um, now that I look at it, yeah, the release date was January 12th. So probably like the second or third movie I watched. And it was the first one to really leave an impression because like I said, I was, I was very surprised that a movie like this, you know, the inbred cannibal storyline thing, uh, they subverted expectations a little bit because it wasn't exactly like wrong turn. It wasn't necessarily just a bunch of mutated redneck brothers who are going around doing this. There's, there's more involved to the story. It's got a little bit more depth to it. But, of course, the kills aren't nearly as good as the original Wrong Turn. So, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of a balancing act if you're comparing this to Wrong Turn. But, yeah, I, 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 this one also gets a moderate recommend from me. It's not, it's not a strong recommend. It's not, like, um, it's not like required viewing. I don't think it's going to really end up on anybody's top ten by the end of the year. It's just a fun little movie. Um, you know, with some just some cool characters and actually some decent makeup design, too, on the two antagonists, the brothers I was talking about. Um, they're not exactly, quote unquote, normal. I'll leave it at that. But, uh, yeah, the makeup work that they do on those two is really cool. And like I said, the gore is pretty good, too. So if I remember correctly, it might be on Shutter, though I might be wrong on that. So don't quote me. <laughs> but, yeah, if you can get a if you can get a hold of Butchers, check it out. I'm not sure if either. I don't, Mike, I don't think you actually watched it, right, since we decided not to do it for Fresh Cuts? No, I haven't. I, it's it's on the list to watch. It's just stuff starts piling up, and before you know it, it's like, mm -hmm. holy shit, I haven't had time. Yeah, that happens a lot. You'll watch a movie right away. <laughs> yeah, to be perfectly honest, for 2021, outside of what we've been covering on Fresh Cuts, I've kind of been slacking on my new release watches. I've... I, I've still been watching just stuff overall, but like 2021, I don't know. I, I yeah, same with I me. I'm very. It, I, don't but... know, I don't know why, but I am very behind as well. I think I'm only at like 23 or 24 movies for the year, which by this time last year I was at almost 40. So yeah, yeah. I'm pretty behind. But at the same time, casinos are opening up again in California, and anybody who knows me knows I'm a rabid uh, poker player. I'm at the casino as often as I can possibly get out there. Um, so, you know, there've been, there's been other things in my life that have been taking up more, more time. Plus, on top of that, the new video game generation came out at the end of 2020, which I bought both of them. So I've been playing, you know, uh, not really new games. I'm still playing like last generation games just with the updated graphics. So, you know, stuff like Borderlands 3 and Gears 5 looks awesome. But yeah, um, I'm not trying to make excuses. It's just I haven't been watching as many movies as I usually do. Hopefully that gets rectified in the next couple of months. Yeah, I, I think for me it's just been hard to carve out time. Just, you know, with, with family, my kids getting a little bit older and them wanting to do stuff where before it's like I could carve out 90 minutes, not, you know, 90 to 120 minutes to watch a movie anytime I felt like it. But now there's been lots of times where it's like I'll be working and I plan, okay, tonight I'm going to watch this or this. And then it gets to like the evening and suddenly it's like, holy shit, I like, I'm not starting this now at 10 o'clock cause there's no way I'm going to get through it. Mm -hmm. Um, that those type of things just come up more often. So, um, it just is what it is, but you know, I'll find time to work stuff in. It's just, I'll probably be behind for a while. Uh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> did you what see butchers you, Derek? what i did i did not see butchers oh, okay i want to watch cowgirls vs. pterodactyls more though uh you'll probably have a better time with that one honestly <laughs> it's way more fun 
Oh, yeah. And speaking of, do you have anything else on your list, Derek? Yeah, I finally made it through St. Maud. Oh, yes. All right. I I lo- I like- Are you going to tell us we were wrong or that Don was right? <laughs> no, I liked it. I I think nice. I may be in the middle. I might need a few more watches with it because I do feel like it is a mood movie for me. Because the first time I watched it, I watched it at the wrong time to get into it, and you know, never watch a movie after you get out of work like that. No, <laughs> never, never watch a movie when you're tired, unless it's like an old favorite that you don't need to watch. Yeah, yeah, like something that you just don't need. You already seen or some bullshit, uh, which was my mistake the first time. And you know, Mike was like, "What? What do you mean?" And he fell asleep. Yeah, well, I'm just like, is it because in, you were bored or you started it too late? One of the two. <laughs> in Derek's defense, I can see a certain sect of the horror community finding the first hour of St. Maud very boring. And I wouldn't be surprised if one or two of them fell asleep. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, you know, I, I once that second half happens, it's fucking great. You know, it pays off for everything that happened before in the movie. So... It's all good in the hood in my book. I really enjoyed the fuck out of it. Uh, it's a great movie. Well made. Well shot. It has some great atmosphere, too. Michael, never cut me off. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> damn, Jerry Herring. You know? You know, but... Uh, yeah, go ahead, Michael. No, I was just going to say, uh, this is why I also mentioned what we were doing on Fresh Cuts, and I was like, I think this is a movie that gets better on a second watch because the the first time through, yeah, I, I would say the, the first and second act both can come off as very slow. And then also the third act kind of hits you and you're kind of processing it. And on the second watch, when you go into it, knowing that then you start looking for little nuances and little pieces of the puzzle of why it's filmed like that. And which leads up to the end. So like my appreciation for it went up on a second watch. So maybe that'll happen if you, get around to ever seeing it again. Yeah, I'll watch it again for sure. I own it on Blu-ray and shit. And the yeah. good thing is it's quick. Yeah, I got oh, yeah. the UK Blu-ray of this one, so I'll be watching that shit again before the end of the year, before Ooh, nice. top ten lists come out and shit. Top ten? Shit. shit. Top three, maybe. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I, at this point, it's easily my number one of the year, but of course, it's only, what, March 7th, so... Little, little too early. Yeah, it, it's still early. You know, there could be some yeah. heavy hitters later on in the year too. Definitely, definitely. But I mean, for whatever it's worth, my favorite movie of 2020 came out in January. So yeah. sometimes you you do get to see your number one of the year early, and it stays there the whole year. So rare instance, definitely, but still. Yeah, sure. Hmm. Um. All right. Well, my last one um is. A completely random watch. I just was kind of browsing around on Shutter, and it piqued my interest. And that would be Night Tide from 1961, or either Dennis Hopper. Yep, Dennis Hopper dating a mermaid or a supposed mermaid. And this is one I had never seen before, and it seemed kind of interesting. And I actually liked it. Like for the majority of the movie, it's just him. And the female character, you know, getting to know each other, conversating. And it seems fairly, like, non-horror at all. And then um, 
people around Dennis Hopper. So basically he's a, he plays like a Navy guy who's on leave in this like small coastal beach town. And, you know, so he goes out at night to like a jazz club and, uh, is kind of smitten by this uh, this woman where she agrees to meet up with him the next day and make breakfast and all this. So then they get to know each other, start dating. All seems fairly normal at this point, but then people around him start uh, warning him, hey, her, her last two boyfriends both drowned. And everyone's like, there's like a debate. Oh, it, it was just an odd coincidence. And no, there's no way that could happen. So then, you know, uh, more events and the movies start happening that go down a certain road. And then we, we find out what, you know, was actually happening the whole time, which, you know, I'm not going to spoil everything in the movie, but um, I thought it was pretty good. And man, it's crazy to see Dennis Hopper in a movie this far back. He was a young, he was a young buck back really? then. Um, this is the first time and, you've seen him that young? I mean, I, I've seen him in that general era before, but it's been a while. I mean, I have, I haven't seen Rebel Without a Cause, him. dude. James yeah, Rebel Without. Yeah, I, I haven't I, seen I, that I haven't in like twenty that years. Years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's not that I've never seen him from this era. Just it's it's been a while. Um, but I like this movie a lot. I thought it was pretty fun. The story kept me engaged, and uh, I, I liked the outcome of it. I liked the mystery surrounding um, the supposed mermaid character. And I liked how it resolved pretty good. Uh, Derek, you said you've seen it before. What, what did you think of it? Yeah, I dig the fuck out of this movie. It has a like, kind of like a Lovecraftian atmosphere to it. Without you know, it has like this foggy atmosphere throughout the movie. It's kind of has that great black and white cinematography, kind of in Carnival of Souls fashion. Uh huh. To it that gives it like this dreamlike quality. To the film, which I always really enjoyed, and I'm a huge Dennis Hopper fan, and he's great in the film. Yeah, I love kind of like the setting it takes place on, where the whole movie feels like it, it's like two places, basically her her place and just you know strolling in a little village on the on the beach town. But it's it's a cool setting, and yeah, it's it's one of those movies from far back that if a lot of people haven't seen, it is on Shutter right now. I, was, I think it's also on Tubi. Um, it can be seen there as well, so it's it's out there for people to check out if they're interested to see some of Dennis Hopper's earlier work. Yeah, watch that in his death scene in True Grit. <laughs> That's going way back too. True Grit. Now listen here, Dennis Hopper. It's me, the Duke. I'm gonna bury you after you die. The Duke. <laughs> All right. Well, if that's it for what we watched, we can move right along to some news. Uh, let's see. Not a ton. Freddy Krueger has been cast by Freddy Krueger. Freddy Krueger for Nightmare on in Pet Cemetery, I guess, because there's going to be another Pet Cemetery, guys. If you haven't heard, 
um, because that remake was so successful. But I think, <laughs> I th- from what I'm reading, this one's supposed to be like some type of prequel. Um, why? I, I don't know why. Um, I, I don't know the purpose. I I didn't think, you know, regardless of your opinions on the remake, I think everyone knows most of ours, but I don't I don't see what what could have come from that that would make him be like, I know, we got to do another one. Well, like, you know what this origin story is going to be? It's going to be fucking just the original movie with, with different characters. Like they're gonna like we're gonna kill Gage this time, but his name is not Gage. Oh God! <laughs> it, it'll be a dog instead of a cat or something like that. Yeah, we've totally revamped the story. Clancy uh, Brown comes out of nowhere as this character from Part Cemetery Two from the old. One. <laughs> <laughs> I'd probably be down with that. His character was hilarious, and the kid he killed on the dirt with the dirt bike wheel. <laughs> Oh, the fucking asshole kid from Big? Yeah. yeah. Oh, man, whatever happened to that fool? Oh, no. Yeah, I don't know. I don't have really much to say on this one, man. Uh, yeah, me either. I mean, it's, it's... I don't even know if it's, like, 100% going to happen, but they're just... It, I don't understand the reason for it i i didn't think there was that much going on with yeah, uh yeah it sounds like it's gonna be like maximum overdrive 2.0 <laughs> oh well then we'll be happy about that ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah should we wait till he comes back oh i didn't even know he left I, I didn't go anywhere. Oh, I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> you are being for so quiet. I'm being mysterious. That's all. He he refused to participate in Pet Cemetery prequel talk, and I'm uh, not. I'm not. Yeah, kind of. Honestly. <laughs> yeah, I mean the the quote from the article uh, is: I think if there's anything here, there's a prequel. I think if you look at the book, we didn't cover all that stuff that happens before the Creed family moves in. Which I say, who cares? Because that's kind of what the like who the story rolls around. But so I think there's a movie there, and I think it'd be I'd be particularly interested in doing that because again, it's a source material, and you are going towards something that also has a lot of crazy, creepy feelings about it. I mean, I think what makes Pet Cemetery the original and just the book itself so creepy is that the fact that that Pet Cemetery is already kind of established, and when they are going to it's already been there with all these pet graves and the the soured grounds that they get to so i'm like well when they say prequels like they're just gonna go the cheap route oh it'll just be the yeah it, we want to know what happened before the creed family is in so it'll just be about the very uh last family that was there as if that's like a whole new and story we need or are they talk in prequel like no we're gonna go back as far back to how the native the america was established yeah the native that i would I, I actually wouldn't mind seeing that because um the basis of the pet cemetery story is the wendigo so if they uh-huh. actually were to give me a good wendigo movie and showing me you know how the pet cemetery came to be i might be okay with that um I'm not saying that it's that if that's where they go, it's going to be good or anything. I'm just saying that I, because you know the main point of all this is a Wendigo type story. Give me more of that. 
that's that's the one thing I'll give the remake is that they at least gave us that one shot where it looked like in the shadows, like there might be a Wendigo there. So that's about the only thing I'll give the remake over the original. Um, yeah, but that, I mean, that was I, actually what I was looking forward to the most with the the uh, remake. And I, I still was like, well, they kind of put a glimpse there, but yeah. not as much as I thought they were going to have. Yeah. And they put it in there with no context, too. So if you never read the book, you have no idea what what he's looking at in that scene. So it's kind of weird. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So next up, I got, um, I guess in a bit of good news, depending on how you look on it or look at it, Quiet Place 2 got moved up instead of moved back. So... You know, it, it, it was moved to September, obviously, probably because of the pandemic situation. But now it's been moved to May, so it's moved up. And then if you have Paramount Plus or ever plan on getting it, it's going to be available there 45 days after. And supposedly a third installment is already in the works. That was an idea from Krasinski from the get-go. But... um May is going to be an interesting month because I'm sure some states are going to be open with theaters going on. Um, you know, there's some states right now that are talking about opening up 100%. Yeah, they I are. I mean, a, a few did this weekend. I mean, New York is pretty much totally open, which is really, yeah. really odd. But what are you going to do? Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Obviously, you know, with the vaccination stuff going on, there will be a tipping point where there's enough people vaccinated where you can open everything up and the people who haven't yet been vaccinated should still somewhat be okay. But um, like, if you look at the percentages, we're not there yet. So it's like uh, May, I don't know, May, uh, it, that could be soon enough because supposedly there's enough vaccines that as long as there's no hiccups in like the rollout of getting them to people that they said by the end of May, everyone who wants to be vaccinated should be able to have been. So we'll see if that holds true. I mean, that's a couple months. It, it, it's going to happen. So we'll, we'll see. I'm excited. Quiet Place 2 was on my list of, you know, movies I was hugely looking forward to last year. And uh, it was marked for September, but now May. Um, but it looks like, I mean, from the way the article makes it seem, it is going to be theatrical. And then it'll end up on Paramount Plus 45 days after. I don't currently have Paramount Plus. Just, I do. You know, it's, it's How much another, is it? Yeah, is it five a month? It's five ninety nine. Five ninety nine. How, how's uh what do they what do they roll out at launch like was there anything of note twilight zone jordan peele's twilight zone you don't remember that it was cbs all access paramount Plus oh okay. cbs all access they just changed name they it's not a new app it. they just changed the uh naming convention oh okay yeah it's just cbs all access so all the stuff that's on cbs all access now will just carry over to Paramount when they when it makes the name change. And actually, I think the name change has already gone into place. I, I think, think Paramount so, Plus too. is the app now. Yeah, because I, I believe there was... There were, I, I want to say there's 
something that launched that they advertised, but I can't remember what it was. For Paramount's launch or the original uh, Paramount Plus, like I don't know what it was though, but Shyamalan's going to have a show on it. I, I forget the title, but I did hear that he's going to have another because I know he's got that show on Apple, um, Servant. That's on Apple Plus. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. It's going to have another show apparently on um, on Paramount. So we'll see. Which is not going to be the Tales from the Crypt remake. No. <laughs> Honestly, no. Paramount Plus is the Star Trek fans app. If you if you're a Star Trek fan, just about every Star Trek series is on Paramount. Um, you know, obviously the new ones, Discovery, Picard, um, Lower Decks. You know, the animated one. But a bunch of the classic ones are on there too. Um, you know, uh, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, blah 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 blah. So, it, if you're a Star Trek fan, yeah, I'm pretty sure Paramount Plus is already, uh, you know, as, as part of your service. But you know, we'll applying now. <laughs> yeah, because my wife is a Star Trek fan, so I had to get CBS uh, Plus or CBS All Access. I had to get that right away when it came out because they. As soon as they dropped it, it was it was the first season of Jordan Peele's Twilight Zone and the first season of Star Trek Discovery, um, which my wife is a huge fan of. So, yeah, I had no choice but to get that app. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> coming, coming soon. No more Women in Hell presents Star Trek. <laughs> I will not be on that show. <laughs> you can get Mrs. Venom to be on it. She's the expert. I'm not a Star Trek fan at all. Exactly. I, yeah, it's just not really my thing. I've seen like s- random Star Trek stuff. I've never like sat down like uh, when I was in grade school and junior high, high school, that kind of era. Uh, New Generation was always on because I think it had, it had sit- hit syndication by then to where it was pretty much on every day. And Time from time, I would have it like on the TV and loosely be paying attention. And there's, you know, episodes here and there that intrigue me, but I've never like fully dove into the Star Trek universe. It's just, it's just too it? vast for your little mind, Mike. I know pretty much because then there was like uh, Deep Space Nine and Voyager, and I was like, damn. Oh, I love People, Voyager. Oh, that, that's so still just a fraction of them, Mike. Um, I, I've got a rack here with two whole shelves of Star Trek Blu-rays. Uh, obviously, all the wives, but yeah. Every series, every movie. She's got the box set with all the original Star Trek movies. She's got the box set with the newer Star Trek movies, you know, the Next Generation ones. I mean, uh-huh. yeah. She is a fan, my friend. She's a Trekkie. Uh, yeah. Much to my dismay. She makes them wear Cleon outfits from time to time. Uh, I'm I'm not that accommodating. No. <laughs> like, twenty five years. I mean, we we celebrate our twenty fifth anniversary this month, actually. So yeah, uh, she she's learned who I am by now. She doesn't even try to get me to watch Star Trek anymore. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, let's see. The only other news item I got is American Horror Story spinoff. The anthology show, the little more details, it's going to be 16 one-hour episodes, and it's going to be available on 
It says FX on Hulu, but I assume that just means if you have a Hulu account, it will be available. And this, of yeah. course, is the actual um, standalone episode anthologies, which I have somewhat decent hopes for just because any fan of American Horror Story knows that that's usually the flaw in every season is it's like starts off with a handful of great episodes or maybe not great, but good enough. And they always manage to lose their way or just drag things out too long. So I am very interested to see what they do with these one hour standalone story episodes. I think uh, that could be the way to go if you're going to expand the franchise. And uh, I am looking forward to it. Yeah, that same with me. I I love anthologies, and I, I am somewhat of a moderate fan of American Horror Story. I'm not a big fan. I've seen most of the seasons, and honestly, I think I only like two or three of them as far as beginning to end. Um, but if it's going to be an anthology format, I, I'm I'm on board. I'm always on board. Yeah. 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 I'm I'm curious. And I'm so I, I I like American Horror Story good enough like the original shows and shit. Yeah, uh, yeah some of them the endings I'm like, okay, yeah, but whatever. That's usually what Ryan Murphy does. Uh, <clears throat> Town of Dread Sundown remake. <clears throat> yeah, <laughs> but uh, you know, but uh, fucking uh, yeah, it's pretty good shit. You know, I'm kind of curious in the next season because it's supposedly Macaulay Culkin and Kathy Bates love scene. Oh god, yeah. I've been here. I've been. I want to have nightmares of that. I want to have nightmares of that. I'm closing my eyes for that scene. I'm gonna play like Missy Elliott's get your freak on to that scene. <laughs> no, wet ass pussy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I pretty much have started every season of American Horror. The only one I kind of bailed on quick. I. I wanted, I think it was called Apocalypse. It was the one before Colt, mm-hmm. where uh, it start like I, I remember like the first episode kind of starts with like the apocalypse happening, but then there and then there's like a table like a round table of gods or something. I I can't even remember because that's the season I watched the least of. That's the one uh, that's like it's a spinoff of like Coven and Murder House. I think so, where there's like all these crossover characters in it and. I still feel like I probably should go back just to see if I bailed too soon, but it just it just lost me so quick. Where at least pretty much every other season, regardless of how lukewarm I was on on the way they ended, I still felt that they were strong enough to keep me invested for the majority of the story. It was just okay. Are you guys gonna shit the bed again? Which they did many times, but you know. Um, okay. But, yeah, that's all I got for news. You guys got anything? Uh, I got a couple of pieces of video game news for my gamer brothers and sisters out there. Um, Only one of them is really specifically a horror game, but the other one is something that a lot of horror fans embraced that's making a comeback. So the first game I'm going to talk about is the new Alien game. Obviously, um, with Aliens Colonial Marines, uh, they basically laid a shitstorm. That game was just garbage. It was absolute garbage. It was just one of the worst first-person shooters ever put out. Um, They definitely bounced back a little bit with Alien Isolation, because Alien Isolation was more of a a true survival horror game, you know, where it was literally you had to survive. It wasn't about killing xenomorphs. It was about surviving the one xenomorph. So 
that was definitely a um, a return to form for Alien and or slash Predator games. But the new game is called Aliens Fire Team. And what I've got here in front of me is that Alien Fire Team is a third-person, three-player cooperative survival game that sees a return to the world of colonial marines and alien swarms, but not quite as we know it. Set 23 years after the events of Alien 3, the Xenomorphs are no longer the secret they once were, and outbreaks of the buggers have become a common occurrence. So... Um, from the screenshots I'm looking at, it looks very Gears of War. It's the over-the-shoulder third-person view. Um, we saw that in Dead Space as well, in the three Dead Space games. So, you know, that that's a genre that I really, really like, and, and a game view that I like, that over-the-shoulder. Um, the last couple of, um, well, not the last couple, but Resident Evil 4 and 5 both utilize that uh, camera angle as well to great success. So... Yeah, uh, saw the trailer. Trailer dropped this week. It looks good. Obviously, video game trailers are hard to judge because it's all about the gameplay. It's about getting that controller in your hand and feeling how the characters move, how the weapons fire, blah, 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 everything like that. So, obviously, final judgment will be reserved for when the game comes out, but I will absolutely be on board with this one. Um, from what I understand, I think this is set to release, um, at the end of this year, holiday or summer, end of the summer. Uh, and this will be available for all PlayStation and Xbox consoles, and it will also be available on Steam for PC. So look for that, uh, at the end of the summer, that is Aliens Fireteam. And then the other game I wanted to talk about, like I said, it's not really a horror game, but it's an absolutely insane game that a lot of us remember. Those of us who maybe are more PC gamers from um, the early part of like uh, the 90s and 2000s, we might remember a game called Postal, a game that was very controversial. Um, you know, the, the game came out right after we had a rash of postal workers kind of quote-unquote, going postal and, you know, shooting up their workplaces and co-workers and things like that. And, you know, Postal was a, a series of games that came out that were very controversial. They were not quality games. Like, they, it's not like they were they had stunning graphics and revolutionary gameplay. They were literally gimmick games. And the gimmick was that it was just extremely violent. I mean, those games famously... You could shoot people, then urinate on their dead bodies, and then continue shooting them to dismember limbs. I mean, the game was just over-the-top violent. I believe Gary Coleman actually made an appearance in Postal 2, if I remember correctly. Um, <laughs> it was either one or two, but yeah. And then they even, uh, the, what what do you call it, the, uh, the auteur of shit cinema, uh, Uwe Boll, actually did make a postal film, which unfortunately I did sit down and watch one day. And, well, it's just like every other Uwe Boll movie. It was garbage. So definitely not a film that needs to be watched. But um, Postal Redux is the name of the new game. It looks like it is a remake of the original title. It will be, it will be out this October on PlayStation 4 and 5. Uh, unfortunately, as of right now, it's only available on PlayStation and the Switch, uh, the Nintendo Switch. There are no plans for this game to be released on Xbox yet, but I will definitely keep you guys posted as the weeks and months go by. And once again, that is Postal Redux, available now on the PlayStation Store if you happen to have a PlayStation 4 or 5. So that's all for me for game news, brothers. 
Ule Bow got made into the news. God damn it. <laughs> I hate even mentioning that man, but sometimes it is kind of poignant. So, well, yeah. Ironically enough, the, ne- the not the episode of Cinema Attack that's coming out next week, but the one that's we're going to be recording after is actually we're going to be doing Uli Bow films. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you guys are brave, my friend. Hey, we're going to make a haul of fucking shit somehow. <laughs> it's going to be a haul of shit episode. <laughs> I don't think I've ever given any of his movies more than like a 3.5 out of 10, ever. I mean, what House of the Dead was probably the most popular he, thing he did, and I just famously hated that movie, abhorred it, couldn't stand it. And then, you know, what else has he done? Uh, the Postal movie. Um, Blood, Blood, Blood Rain. Rain. The Blood Rain movie. Oh, God. Alone in the Dark. Alone in the Dark. That's the one that I was uh, mercifully forgetting. Christian Slater. Oh, God. We're actually doing House of the Dead, Alone <laughs> in the Dark, and Blood Rain. Uh, yeah. I don't know why. I mean, Uwe obviously saw a market in video game movies and scooped up as many properties as he could. <laughs> Problem is, he can't make a movie. <laughs> so, it doesn't matter that you own all these great video game franchises. If you can't make a good movie, who cares? You're, you're, if anything, the license is going to waste in his hands, but whatever. Everybody has their opinion on Uwe Boll. I actually met someone who actually likes him once. Go figure. Yeah, no, we're doing like a shitty video game movie show, and then we're doing a good video game movie show after that. Oh, nice. That sounds cool. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> And it, ironically, it ended up being three of his movies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Any more news, Mike? No, I had heard about uh, the Postal game. I think it's like Postal Redux on yeah. PS4. Yeah. I, I watched the trailer. It looks pretty good. I, I'm not sure what the price point is, but I, I would probably buy it just for the hell of it regardless because it looks fun and ridiculous and over the top so yeah if you like stupid video game violence postal's the game for you (laughs) definitely (laughs) uh all right Derek, you got anything nothing news related so far for me myself (laughs) okay well um wouldn't you know it? I don't really have a burning question for this episode. Nothing really was striking the iron at this time. But, uh, I don't know. Do Let's talk about Uwe Boll films. <laughs> talk shit about Uwe Boll films. We can talk shit about him for ten minutes. That'll be a segment, right? Burn on Uwe Boll. He's a better boxer than uh, movie maker. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you guys ever heard that story about... Uh, I guess it was a movie critic, maybe, that him and uh, him and Uwe Boll got into like a, a, a war of words back and forth because the critic obviously hated his movies just like any other normal human being. And I think Uwe, I forget who made the challenge, but one of them challenged the other to a boxing match. And they it actually did. Yeah, okay, so Boll challenged him to a fight, and yeah, Boll actually won. So, hey, I'll give him credit. Just like that Logan Paul guy, he's a better boxer than he is a human being. <laughs> <laughs> and he was he challenged someone what for shit talking his movies? Basically, that, yeah. Ah, interesting. Was well, there anything on the line? Like if he lost 
he can't make movies again or something. <laughs> oh, that would have been great. But no, I don't think there was any kind of stipulation on the fight like that. I think uh, it was just a grudge match. But I mean, once you actually saw the guys in the ring, uh, the critic guy was just way outmatched. Because Uwe Boll is actually fairly in shape. He's a short guy who's pretty stocky. Um, whereas the other guy was just, you know, kind of, kind of basically exactly what you would uh, figure a movie critic would look like, just kind of doughy, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, yeah. no business even <laughs> doing it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Oh, Louisville. It all leads back to him. <laughs> Good time. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, um, let's see. Uh, I guess if that's it. Uh, we can take a break and come back to talk about a couple movies. Let's uh, do it. <laughs> all right. I'll get my Neville Brad action on. Ooh, yes. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> get to chomp down on a couple movies. If you were one of the millions of moviegoers who were electrified by the unbearable suspense and sheer terror of Jaws, get ready for Eaten Alive. <laughs> <laughs> Created by Toby Hooper, maker of the screen sensation, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Marty Rustin presents a new horror classic, Eaten Alive. Into this house of terror comes a handful of unsuspecting innocents. Hello? What happens to these people in Eaten Alive will give you the most chilling, terrifying 90 minutes you ever spent in a theater. presents Eden Alive, Mel Ferrer, Carolyn Jones, Stuart Whitman, Neville Brand. Get ready for Eden Alive, a new horror classic. gonna kill it, aren't we, Joe? You bet, Judge. Consider it already dead. No. No what? We're against killing of any kind. Our work here's important. Someone's polluting these swamps, and it's our job to find out who. I'm not surprised. Take a look at this. The dyes reveal high acid levels caused by industrial waste. Ah! 
still think the crocodile should be saved? If I get the chance, I won't hesitate to kill it. It takes a special breed to make it in there. to get into our Killer Croc movies. I think I'm going to call this episode Killer Crocs Volume 1 because there are so many and on this show we tend to, you know, stick to the movies we're actually covering for the episode. We don't go into like expansive um, other examples. Uh, They may get referenced or talked about briefly, but uh, I'm sure Killer Crocodiles and Alligators get thrown into the mix in the future, so let's just say this is our first episode covering uh, this subgenre of killer crocodiles. So we're going to start with a 1976 Eaten Alive, directed by Toby Hooper. Uh, this was his follow-up to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and interestingly enough, I found some kind of similarities between the two. Just in some. Yeah, okay, <laughs> then it wasn't just me, because from, like, you know, the creepy kind of quote-unquote fa- characters, the oddball characters, the fa- you, you could almost say, like, the crocodile in this was, like, Leatherface in the sense that everyone knows Texas Chainsaw Master because of Leatherface, but when you actually see the movie, he's just, like, one element of that family. Um, it's not as Leatherface-centric as people assume when they see later movies in the franchise or just kind of the way Leatherface himself has kind of become the iconic character. Uh, That's sort of like eating alive. Yes, there's a killer crocodile in it, but it's almost like the killer crocodile just kind of operates (laughs) parallel to what's going on with the movies with this crazy, uh, what the hell is it? Like a hotel uh, yep. being run the starlight hotel is it called yep, um yep. and yeah and our 
crazy character Judd played by Neville Brand. Um, that jumps out. The other thing that jumped out to me immediately was Robert England, a very young Robert England for what we're used to seeing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's actually a few familiar faces. There's a bunch, movie. yeah. Oh, I yeah, there are. Surprised. The Phantom of the Paradise is in this fucking movie. Well, yeah, Morticia Adams is in this movie. <laughs> yeah, she is. Yeah. Uh, this, yeah, so this predates uh, Robert England playing Freddy Krueger by, what, eight years? Because Nightmare on Elm Street was 84. So he uh, looks younger, and it's it's always kind of cool to see. Like, when someone's become an icon for a specific character that they played, like, you know, over the course of a decade and a half, it's, it's kind of cool to seek out their other stuff because sometimes they can get pigeonholed, and once they play that role so many times, it's hard for them to get, you know, mainstream big production work outside of that so in the case of robert england it's like well what did he do before nightmare on elm street because that might be the best uh case scenario and looking for stuff and eating alive is one of them he plays a real good fucking sleazeball weirdo in this one named buck um and he's ready to fuck in the opening scene and what an opening scene that is uh <laughs> But uh, before, you know, I get into too much of it, well, uh, I want to hear what everyone else has to say. So, Venom, have you seen Eaten Alive before? What are your thoughts on it? I have seen Eaten Alive before, and um, watching it this week, my opinion of the film has not changed. And uh, I'll caveat uh, the rest of my review by saying this is probably going to be the episode where I make a lot of haters. But unfortunately, I got to stick to my guns and say that I've never been that big a fan of Eaten Alive. Mike says that some of the movie feels like Texas Chainsaw. No, 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 no. Beginning to end, this movie has the the tone of Texas Chainsaw. Um, And Mike's analogy is actually perfect. This is Texas Chainsaw with a crocodile instead of Leatherface. You could make the argument that the Judd character is kind of like the cook or the hitchhiker from the original. You can make an argument that Buck is kind of... Even though Buck isn't technically an antagonist, he is a dickhead. So, you know, you can make the argument that he's kind of similar to the hitchhiker, blah, blah, blah. There's so many similarities. There's one scene in this movie where uh, Judd is chasing a little, not a little girl, he's chasing Buck's girlfriend um, through, uh, through the swamp surrounding the hotel. And when the girl gets away, Judd literally does the Leatherface dance from the end of Texas Chainsaw, where he's holding his sickle above his head and he's doing circles. I'm I'm looking at it and I'm like, Jesus Christ, Toby. He really, really tried to recreate the magic that he got on Texas Chainsaw in this film. And it just didn't work for me. Now, I'm not saying that this is necessarily a bad film. This is a film that doesn't work for me personally. Um, I love Neville Brand as Judd. I really do. I feel like they could have put the, this movie could have centered on Neville Brand's character and not even had a crocodile, honestly. Uh, a lot of people look back at Eaten Alive as a quote-unquote crocodile movie, you know, because they remember there's a crocodile in there. The movie poster famously features the crocodile on the cover. But honestly, Je- uh, Judd kills more people than the crocodile in this movie, you know, with his sickle. So, you know, he's, to me, he is definitely, I mean, because obviously the crocodile is just a crocodile. He's doing what he does naturally. For those who don't know, crocodiles are very aggressive, much more aggressive than alligators. Um, 
even when they're not hungry, which we'll talk about in the second film uh, today, um, even when they're not hungry, if something they don't like comes near them, they will still attack it and destroy it. And that's common amongst uh, the species in general. So honestly, I, I, I can barely look at this as a crocodile movie. And even the title, Eaten Alive, it's like most of the people that he throws in to the crocodile are already dead. So it's not like they're, I mean, yes, don't get me wrong. There are people, there are a couple of characters, you know, um, who do technically get eaten alive, quote unquote. But honestly, this movie should have centered around Judd more than anything. Now, I will say that I enjoy, like Mike said, seeing all these great genre stars in earlier roles. And in one particular case, uh, a later role in her career. And that was, of course, Carolyn Jones, who plays the madam in this movie, Mrs. Hattie. Uh, she, of course, played Morticia Adams in the original Adams Family uh, television series uh, with John Anus as, uh, or John Enos, excuse me, as, um, you know, um, what the hell was his name? Gomez. Gomez, thank you. Um, so, yeah, so you've got Caroline Jones, who you don't even really recognize right away because this is so far removed from... Uh, you know, the more glamorous character of Morticia Adams with her tight black, you know, dresses, you know, the hot gothic chick that, you know, people kind of yearn for now. And then you see her in this film and she's obviously aged greatly. Um, she she doesn't even walk upright like she she must have some kind of problem with her back or neck because she kind of has that slumped walk that you see a lot of old people have. So, and this movie technically is only what three or four years before her eventual death in the early eighties. So, you know, she probably wasn't in the greatest shape for this film. I mean, not that the role was that demanding. There was no, she's not in any of the scenes with the crocodile or with Judd. So it's not like she had to do any action necessarily just sit there and talk, but um, still great to see her though, because um, I was—I personally was, am a huge fan of the uh, the Adams family, and seeing any of them in, in any of the actors that played on the Adams family, seeing them in other content always makes me happy. But I mean, uh, we get Marilyn Burns, of course, our final girl from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, makes a return visit and becomes another final girl for Toby Hooper. So obviously, Toby—you know—Toby has his favorites. Yeah. Um. You know, you've got William Finley in here as Roy. You've, uh, obviously, we've already talked about Robert England. I mean, and of course, the incomparable Neville Brand, who is making his second appearance on No More Room in Hell. Of course, uh, I believe sometime in, was it 2019 or last year that we did Without Warning? Well, we, did, was, we had our Alien show. It, it might have been late 2019, early 2020. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's nice to see Neville Brand again, because he really is good at playing a horror antagonist. I mean, this one, he definitely takes the craziness up to 11, which is great to see, don't get me wrong. But like I said, this is why I wished he was more the centerpiece antagonist for this film, as opposed to the crocodile. But yeah, like I said, my biggest issue with this movie is that it just feels too much like Texas Chainsaw. I mean, even in soundtrack, cinematography, um... Uh, the color correction even. I mean, the movie just looks too much like Texas Chainsaw to me. It looks too much like a heavy-handed attempt, like I said, of Toby kind of recreating the, the home run that he hit with Texas Chainsaw. So, I mean, none of the performances in the film are, like, um, bad. Like, you're not really cringing at line dialogue or line deliveries. 
you're not frustrated with people's, you know, necessarily decision making because they are out in a very isolated area. You know, there's not really a whole lot you can do, especially, you know, pre cell phone days and everything else. So ultimately, the movie isn't terrible by any stretch, but it just doesn't it didn't always work for me. So I'm just going to leave it at that. It's a it's a good movie that I can enjoy, you know, infrequently, like maybe every five, ten years, I might sit down and watch it, but it's definitely not a favorite of mine. It's not a, it's not even like a top three Toby Hooper movie, in my opinion. But again, just my opinion, folks, if you love this movie, I can see why, because it does have the stink of Hooper all over it. And for a lot of people, that's a good thing, including myself. But because this movie is only two years after Texas Chainsaw and it just felt too much like an extension of what he did on TCM. So just my, yeah. well, and the interesting thing to me, like as I was watching and all these similarities came up, like by the time the movie ended and from watching this one, the, like we've already both mentioned, there's a lot of general similar concepts, concepts, but in a way, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and it's weird to say that about that movie, that it almost feels more refined in its concepts than this is. Like, I, if, if someone told me that this was his first movie and Texas Chainsaw Massacre is where he kind of honed in on the concepts from Eating Alive but improved on them to make them, you know, a little more focused and uh, cohesive, I would have believed it because I, I think um, it was I, – I think there was something – to this movie that could have been you know could have resulted in a better movie but because he stuck almost to that model so much uh for eating alive coming off texas chainsaw massacre that it created just a movie that's kind of everywhere it's uh it's trying to do a lot of things and um I, i think that i think that's one of the problems when it's like going into it thinking it's a killer crocodile movie and then it ends up more like a crazy family. Oh yeah. And there happens to be a killer crocodile, um, in, in what the moat surrounding the hotel or the river, uh, uh, it, it kind of makes it a mixed bag. There's, I, I, like, I would still say there's plenty to like about it. Like you said, a lot of familiar mm-hmm. faces, um, the performances are fine. And you know, the stuff we do get with the crocodile I, I'm down with, I think the stuff with Judd, like there's a couple of times when like he's just going after people. I think there's a good one where uh, he jumps out from like the bottom of the stairwell and goes to chase people like stuff like that is like kind of a staple this era of horror movies. And I think there's a lot of good execution in this movie. It's just that, you know, by the end, halfway into it, you're just like, man, this this really mimics TCM so so much um even i mean i i was basically listing as i was watching the movie and taking notes i'm listing the kind of things that you know the movie has similar to it even the abuse that marilyn burns takes in this movie very comparable to what she has to go through in tcm i actually have here in my notes god bless marilyn burns for being so willing to sacrifice her body, you know, between jumping out the window and TCM, falling down the stairs in this movie, getting flipped over that fence when she was trying to save her daughter, 
I mean, you know, I, I had no idea that Marilyn Burns was this physical in her role. So it's it's just very cool to see someone be that dedicated to the genre and the craft. So, again, kudos to Marilyn Burns for her work in both Toby Hooper films. Uh, yeah. All right, Derek, what do you think about Eating Alive? Uh, this is not a first time watching me. I've seen this before. I... I, I, I think I like this movie a little bit more than you guys. I'm not saying it's perfect. I kind of agree with everything you guys are saying. I just, you know, I just I just enjoy the, the aspect of Neville Brand a lot in this film. It's kind of like, because actually, if you didn't know this in real life, he's actually was a Vietnam vet. So he actually has like that post, uh, he could actually dwell into like uh, this character where he had like this post-war traumatic stress disorder type of role into the character that he plays with Judd, which I actually like, and it's very interesting. I I never actually ever seen this film as a killer crocodile film. I just thought it was just a crazy old dude with a pet crocodile that he feeds his dead victims to. So I never ever thought of it as a killer crocodile. There is scenes where the croc actually does help him kill people, though, which is kind of hilarious. Uh, you know, and... You know, I just like all the fucking side care. I, you know, when once people I didn't recognize when I was a kid when I watched this movie, that I recognize now, like Mel Ferrer, who's a star of like tons of Italian movies. Uh, when he gets a fucking scythe to the throat, it was like, oh shit, that was fucking awesome. You know, uh, <laughs> you know the kills are great in the movie. My, you know, I enjoy the aspects of the movie. I like the. You know, I even like the beginning where they try to fool you and you follow, like, this hooker girl that you think might be the main character of the film. And then, nope, they Janet Lee her, you know. <laughs> you know, I like the, you know, aspect of it. And, you know, you know, Stuart Whitman's eyebrows as the sheriff. You can't go wrong with those eyebrows, man. Those are some striking eyebrows. <laughs> you know. They're distinguishing, that's for sure. Yeah, you know, I like it, but, you know, I... I can see why others wouldn't, and you know, I, I'm not saying it's a great movie or even a, you know, it's not like I don't think it's perfect by any means. It's not TCM, which you know, I still enjoy it for what it is, and and you know, I don't mind it because you know, it's kind of like that Wes Craven effect where kind of like Hills Have Eyes and Last House had like that same grindhouse aesthetic to both of those movies. And they even had fucking booby traps in it. So he took things from those, his first movie to his second movie too. So I get it. It's a filmmaker evolving is trying, he's trying to recapture like what he had with the first film that he had. But this one's kind of a little bit noticeable because it actually has like named stars in the movie too mixed in with it. So I think maybe that's why, it's maybe like, oh, that didn't look good because you, you see like a famous actor doing it more than, say, like somebody you didn't recognize mm-hmm. too, in that sense. But overall, I still enjoy it in live for what it is. It's a filmmaker grown to his element, and, you know, uh, it, it's definitely not the worst Toby Hooper film. <clears throat> Mortuary. Oh, no. Mortuary. You know, but... I still I still say give it a shot if you haven't seen before, listeners. You, you know. Yeah, definitely. And I totally agree with you on the kills. The, some of the kills in this movie really are great. Um, the scythe to the neck is obviously probably the high point for gore in this film, but 
Also, um, when Judd takes out the dad, the first dad that shows up, um, yeah. Marilyn Burns' husband, I thought that scene, that kill was cool because it's like Judd starts it, but then the crocodile breaks through the guardrail around the lake and actually pulls the guy down by his head. I thought that looked great. Um, this is definitely a kind of a cool, it does have that Jaws element of less is more because we're not constantly seeing the crocodile. Yeah. Um, you know, you only see him every now and again, and it's usually just quick shots of it. So it's not like, you know, we're going to see how fake it looks or whatever. I mean, as far as how they shot the croc, I thought that, I, I agree that that all looks really good. And like I said, the kills all really worked for me. You know, what kills we got all totally worked. Judd, Judd is vicious, and he just happens to have a way to get rid of the bodies. So, you know, good on yeah. him, I guess. Yeah, it works I for him. I just wish he took better care of his zoo. <laughs> yeah. Did you, did you recognize the little girl? Oh, uh, I did not. That's Lindsay Wallace from the original Halloween. Oh, shit. That's Kyle oh, Richards, the Housewives of Beverly Hills or so. Gotcha. Yeah, I didn't yeah. notice that. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. The, you know, those little Richard sisters were always in these 70s movies, her and her sister. <laughs> fucking, I remember watching her sister in a song from Precinct 13. Could I get another ice cream? And she gets shot in the throat. <laughs> <laughs> that was the greatest scene ever when I was a kid. Like, I was just shocked, dumbfounded. But, you know, it's cool to see that they had, like, this horror background and they explained before they did, like, whatever they did, I, you know. It's fun in that sense, and you know it's good to see them like working on these little like little kids working on these type of movies. You know, you never see that. You know, absolutely. I did. There, there are other like non-name characters in this movie that are moderately entertaining, uh, especially the bar scene. Uh, there's a scene at the bar, you know, where Buck and a and a girl are hanging out there. We'll eventually see that girl naked later in the film. Uh, kudos to her, by the way, and. Um, there's a couple of characters, like, I, I don't know the name of the character, but Slappy McGee is what I call them. The guy that was slapping that dude around. I don't know why I found that scene so entertaining, but I totally did. Um, I did, too. And, you know, what's that? I did, too, yeah. It was just a nice little light piece, a light scene for, you know, the um, sandwiched by all the more serious stuff, you know, at the hotel. But... Um, yeah, uh, there's multiple little bit players in here that actually did make me chuckle. So, I mean, I'll give the credit. It's I'll give the movie its credit when it's due. Um, it's not like it did everything wrong. Not at all. There's a lot of really enjoyable stuff in this film. Like I said, we've already talked about the people that are in it, some good performances, some great kills. The score is just meh. It's there. It's kind of reminiscent of Texas Chainsaw. Uh, well, the more yeah. I, ironically, it's also done by Toby Hooper, the score. He did score yeah, for TCM, right. too. So, yeah, it does. Yeah, they are so similar that it, it makes sense that he did both. But, um, yeah, it was, it was just like I said. Um, if it didn't feel so much like Texas Chainsaw, I probably would have enjoyed it more. Also, if I would have seen it when it was new, I have a feeling I would have enjoyed it a lot more. Because... At this point, Toby only has, you know, Texas Chainsaw out and maybe a couple of short things that he did in college. But mm -hmm. for the most part, you know, for features, it's just TCM. So I think if I would have seen this in 76 as a young horror fan, I probably would have liked it more. I probably would have said, OK, it makes sense that this is a Toby Hooper movie. 
And I probably would have gotten more into Hooper, like going into the early 80s where he's doing stuff like Funhouse and Poltergeist and blah, blah, blah. Invaders so, from Mars, yeah. Yes. Oh, I love Invaders from Mars. Exactly. So, I mean, that the early 80s of Hooper is when I really, really start to get into his filmmaking. So um, you like, like the coked out yet, version. He hit a home run. He just, you know, he put together this gorilla project and just hit an absolute home run with it. But... Like I said, I just feel like Eaton Alive just feels too much like he's trying to, almost like he's trying to come up with the Hooper formula, and yeah. it just didn't work as well for me. But, I mean, overall, it's still an enjoyable movie. It's just, like, I've, I've already said it like three or four times, it's just not really for me. Yeah. Um, I, I would have liked some different decisions made. I've already said I wish Judd was a more... Um, a bigger player in the movie. And obviously that's saying a lot because he is a big player in the movie already. You know, I'm not saying that he has a bit part, not at all. He is definitely the main antagonist of the film, but it does seem kind of funny how, when you mention eaten alive to horror fans, they instantly think of the crocodile. And I've already kind of said, you know, with the movie poster and everything else, and even the title of the movie eaten alive, it's not like Judd is a cannibal. So definitely referencing the crocodile. So, I can see why people automatically consider it a crocodile movie, but I also see how Derek doesn't. And obviously Derek is a bigger fan of this movie than, you know, your average horror fan. So I can see why he doesn't see it as a crocodile movie. Cause you know, ultimately I kind of agree with them. It's, it's definitely more about Judd. Cause if Judd wasn't there, that crocodile doesn't eat, you know, he just eats every now and again when somebody's stupid enough to get in the water. Um, Judd is obviously the more the keeper, you know, Judd is kind of like the, uh, what do you call it? The Betty White of Lake Placid in this movie. You know, yeah. You know, like he raised the, he raised it as a pet, you know, it was his exactly. pet crocodile. Like he even tells the story to the girl when, before he ends up killing her with a fucking yard rake, you know? Yeah, Jesus. Yeah. That first kill is pretty intense too. That as was well. fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I actually agree with you in the title. I actually prefer the UK title of this movie, death trap, which is actually yeah, that's more general title for this movie. I think. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I, I understand why they went for eating alive. It definitely has more of a punch to it. I mean, just to hear that title as a horror fan, just, you know, kind of gets us all excited. Um, yeah. I'm more a fan of the 1980 and alive, but that that's a conversation for another uh, episode when we do uh, jungle cannibal movies eventually. Mimi, Mimi Lau? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, I love that movie. Um, but like I said, I, I see why people love this movie. I don't want to disparage it. I definitely don't want to shit on a movie that people that a lot of people love. I mean, people that I know love Eating Alive, and I even know one person who this is their favorite Toby Hooper movie. You know, to each his own. Again, I'm not going to give anybody crap for their opinion, but um, I just wish the movie was a little bit more, especially because it was a follow-up to one of the greatest horror films ever made. So that's really... I, that, that's really my only major issues with it. It's all good in the hood, man. You know. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, cool. And then before I, we find, I, I gotta ask. Everything said. <laughs> why does a dog always have to die in a crocodile movie? Have you guys not noticed that? Not <laughs> well, just today's movies, but a- almost every crocodile movie I ever remember watching, a dog dies in it. These small, two little dogs are just easy to fit in a crocodile mouth, I guess. <laughs> poor little Snoopy. Oh, man, poor Snoopy. 
<laughs> it was really yeah, oh, the dog lots, inside lots the... Lots of nudity, too, for anybody who cares. If that's oh, something yeah. you're looking for in your horror films. <laughs> Plus, you got Carolyn Jones dressed like if the Riddler was a poker dealer. <laughs> yes! <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, I didn't even think of that. <laughs> she was like, who's this poker dealer lady? <laughs> <laughs> so good. Yeah, I almost looked at, like, Buck as kind of like almost a hitchhiker character, only because he's like weird and awkward, kicks the movie off, and then he, like, goes away for a while and then shows back up. Yeah, Neville right. Brandis keeps yelling at him. Get out of here! <laughs> I mean, the first time I saw the film, I was convinced it was going to turn out he was working with Judd. Even with that, even too. with their first interaction when Judd's yelling at him, get out of here, get out of here, for some reason, I still thought, oh, it's going to turn out him and Buck are working together. Which would then make it even more uh, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So I'm glad at least he didn't go that path. But I mean, the movie I was is thinking the same enough, thing. Like TCM. So. And poor fucking Ruby, the, that Ruby lady, just sending everyone to the starlight. Just go to the starlight. Here's fifty dollars. At the beginning, or the housekeeper lady. Yeah, and then it's. She tells the poor girl, don't let Judd know you're one of mine. It's like, well, technically, she's not one of hers, because I'm assuming that was her first day at Mrs. Hattie's, and then she basically got stage fright the first time Buck wanted to do anything. So it's like, technically, she was never Mrs. Hattie's girl. So, yeah, yeah Judd kind of killed her for no reason. <laughs> he just smelled it like, you, Mrs. Hattie's girl. Yeah. <sighs> And, and as he's killing her, I'm just I'm just sitting in my living room, just thinking, who the hell are you that you get to kill fucking prostitutes? You're a you're a scumbag hotel owner who feeds people to your alligator. You're somehow on a higher pedestal than a prostitute. No, not at all. <laughs> yeah. But that's that crazy mindset, too. You know, that's the way that Judd justifies everything. Oh, these are whores. They have no value to the world. So fuck it. But then. Like I said, but then he kind of kills, like, good upstanding families just as easily, just as callously. So yeah. I don't know if it really is a set of beliefs or he's just a crazy fucker who likes to yeah. kill people. Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think it's like he has something up. It's not all right in his head pretty much oh, at yeah. that point. Okay. All Let's right. See. Yep. Let's move on from eating Alive to today's second crocodile feature and this one is probably the most inventive name of all time killer crocodile i got so much about the score <laughs> yeah so we went from a movie that uh had a lot of uh texas chainsaw massacre beats to one that opens up almost like jaws i mean it definitely borrows the Jaws uh It's definitely theme. a Jaws ripoff. Oh, absolutely. Even, even the opening scene is pretty much Jaws. Like the opening scene. I mean, scene there's is a Jaws. Quint character. We you know, we get a character very similar to Quint in this. I Joe. mean yeah. Joe. Joe the Hunter. <laughs> but yeah, I mean I, I couldn't agree with that statement more. you know, the similarities that Eaton Alive has with TCM, this movie absolutely has with Jaws. Even yeah, though it came like what, fifteen years later? Crazy. Yeah, and I, w I would say, like, at least Eaten Alive, there's a specific reason for it because of the same director and, you know, that, that his tendencies show. Killer Crocodile really has no excuse because it's just straight. Oh, it's, a, it's, a, it's Italian ripoff. Yeah, it's, uh, they do the. 
this, they did like 35 of these movies in the 80s. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's better than Cruel Jaws, at least. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I'll say, to be fair, I still think this one was fun. Um, this massive crocodile, um, every character from Jaws you could think of shows up in this pretty much. Uh, not literally every character, but uh, <laughs> rip-off versions of them is what I meant. And I, I, as I was watching this, I felt like, man, this is like a combination of Jaws and Anaconda, but it does predate Anaconda. But it reminded me of it where it's like a team is kind of like surveying down the river and then mm-hmm. people start getting picked off. And then like the Jaws theme hits or the Jaws <laughs> ripoff theme hits every time the crocodiles in the area. <laughs> it's just so distracting because it's so obvious that they're like, let's just take the Jaws theme and change like two notes. And uh, there we go. We got the theme for the movie. <laughs> uh, I mean, this one's very basic in its story and premise. It's, you know, surveyors going down the river because supposedly they're suspecting the pollution um, is being man-made caused by, you know, nefarious reasons. And on their way, they encounter a killer crocodile and things go from there. Killer crocodile does what you would expect a killer crocodile to do. It all leads up to our showdown at the end where once again, we get a very Jaws-like ending (laughs) with how the killer crocodile is killed. Along the way, like I think Venom mentioned, we even get like our Quint ripoff, mm-hmm. uh, the Crocodile Hunter, and we even get the mayor. That you I mean, saw in we yep. get the mayor character. We get Quint. I mean, you know, if they would have had a Brody character, forget about it. I'd have thrown my hands up in the air. But <laughs> at least they didn't go that far. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I guess Derek, what do what do you got to say about Killer Crocodile? Killer Crocodile is one of those type of movies where I'm just dying laughing the fucking whole time and watching it because <laughs> you know I'm not gonna say this is a particularly well made movie right off the bat. I'm not gonna give to give that to the listeners, but I enjoy the fuck out of this movie for all the wrong reasons. You know, it's one of those like you know the score is done by Rizzo Rilani, and you know he got paid probably two cents to do the score and gave no fucks. They're like, get make this, give me Jaws theme, and Rizzo's like, okay, I'll do it. You know, I'll just do it's a lazy score for sure by uh, the guy who did the score for Cannibal Holocaust. So yeah, mind blown. I love the paper mache alligate crocodile in this movie. It's so. Fucking hilariously great, made by uh, the master of Italian horror effects, Giannata De Rossi, who's worked on some of my favorite movies of all time. Like he did the effects for Fulci Zombie, The Beyond, House by the Cemetery, uh, went on to do the effects for Conan the Destroyer, uh, went on to do the effects for High Tension. You know, this guy is nice. prolific, you know. And The Alligator. Yeah, it's it's a fake alligator, but you know I just love looking at it. It's like they actually built this fucking giant crocodile. You know, it's fucking cool. I love it, especially and you know the characters. You know, dubbed Anthony Krenner. He's no Richard Krenner. He's not his dad. <laughs> you know, Joe Joe's fucking hilarious. I love that whole scene. The whole scene at the end cracks me up when he when bloody Joe just fucking froze his hat to him like. <laughs> This for the kid. It's like a fucking mean Joe Green fucking soup commercial or something. 
<laughs> you know, and the, Alec, the crocodile's death at the end. I bursted out fucking laughing so hard when the propeller made the alligator explode. <laughs> I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like four times, too. <laughs> it was great. I was just dying because it makes like, no I'm... sense, but it's fucking hilarious. Oh, God, it was like a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie, just watching it explode three or four times in a row. It's like, what the hell am I looking at? What was that propeller made of? Yeah, overall, look, I'm not going to sit here and tell the listeners this is a well-made film, but if you're going to have a few beers and you have a few friends over to watch a Killer Crocodile movie with, this is definitely one that you guys should watch for like one of those marathons. It's a fucking blast in that sense. You know, but I enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. It's like despite everything we're saying and it being very true about all the Jaws ripoff tendencies, it's still kind of fun and goofy and uh, something you get together with your friends to watch probably as part of a marathon. Um, there is a part two, which the end of this one even alluded to it with our baby killer croc oh, oh, out of egg I'll tell you guys about that I'll tell you that guys about that one after yeah I was it. actually planning to watch the second one just for the hell of it but, but I just didn't have time to um, but you know as far as this one goes pretty just echoing what every, everyone's already said about it, it, it it's kind of like the bare minimum story just to have an excuse of a killer crocodile to kill people and sometimes that's all you need when it comes to killer animal movies you don't need uh, you know, a crazy in-depth complex story. It's it, your movie is called Killer Crocodile for fuck's sake. Like people just want to see a crocodile kill people and then have like a cool ending of the crocodile probably at the end of the movie. And at least we got that, even though if it looks very familiar in its presentation and how it sounds, because it is. Yeah, the second one's fucking. You know, it starts out with like the crocodile. You know. The baby crocodile, he's all grown up. I I think it takes place like two years maybe after the fucking last one. Or a year. I'm not really sure of the timeline. But he's already full grown and mutated because, of course, there's still toxic waste in the waste. Uh, pretty much it follows, you know, uh, a girl who's trying to scout. Uh, I forget what she's scouting, actually. But they end up, she ends up getting lost and they end up getting Anthony Craner to come back into the movie to find her because it's in like the same area and he's kind of like the expert. So he actually hooks up back up with Joe and they both go out to look for this missing woman. And then it turns into kind of like romance in the stone with a fucking killer crocodile. <laughs> I'm dead serious. They end up, it's like scene for scenes from romance in the stone and then the killer crocodile shit happens. And it's hilarious because like they actually like when he's going to Joe's lair, they actually have a flashback scene of him, the fucking, the flashback of Joe throwing the hat to him. Good luck, kid! <laughs> that was silly. Yeah, they, they, they show a few flashbacks, of course, to the original, the, in case you didn't see that one before this <laughs> one. That type of deal. You know, and it's not as bad as, like, Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2, but it's kind of like that in that sense. But, you know, there's, still, there's enough original shit in it that makes it its own sequel too, where you know it's actually actually directed by Giannotti the Rossi the sequel uh, the effects guy 
Yeah, I enjoyed it. You know, they're fun to shut your brain off crocodile movies, both of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Uh, um, if that's what you're looking for, these movies deliver on that specifically. And they're very different from each other, um, which is cool. And, uh, you know, I, I would I would say recommend to watch them both. Uh, just to, just to see him and uh, Killer Crocodile. It's 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 a fun one, man. You can't deny the fun factor on it. At least if if, if uh, you can't, <laughs> I think it. I mean, I think it's fun, but I don't know. You don't. You're not a a fan of the fun stuff in Killer Crocodile, man. Um. Well, I, I guess this will be my uh, general thoughts because I haven't actually spoken about the movie yet. Um, I, I'm really sorry, guys, but I, I hate this movie. I don't like this movie at all. Um, the acting is painful, fucking painful. There are there are conversations in here that are so hard to listen to, and and I will I will fully admit that this movie is originally shot in a mix of Italian and English, and obviously the version that we saw is totally dubbed. It's all English, so maybe there's some story points that are lost in translation or whatever the case may be. But I think the dialogue in this movie is just terrible. It it just, it it literally hurt my ears. There's a conversation in like a restaurant with the judge. Um, I forget exactly what they, I I think it was when they first accused the judge of knowing um, what's going on with the dumping after Conchita dies. Um, It just, the, the the conversation, I don't remember actual full lines from the conversation, but goddamn, I just remember when the scene ended, I wrote in my notes, holy shit, that judge conversation was painful. And then there's other conversations later in the film that are just incredibly so poorly put together. And like I said, this is an Italian film that's dubbed over to English. So I, I will give them some credit. Maybe if I saw this movie in Italian with subtitles, I may have enjoyed it more. In fact, I guarantee I would have enjoyed it more because, you know, obviously they have to put the English dub in, in a way that fits the lips of the actors. Uh, so sometimes they'll have to change lines. I understand that. Venom, but Venom, man, Venom. Venom, I, that, I, might, I, I actually watched the Italian dub version of this movie. See, I wish I did. I wish but it's, I did. But, but the, the lips still don't match because it's a dub of two. Oh, that's a dub as well? Jesus. Yeah, there's no... like That's how Italians do it. They don't use sound in their movie. They they ADR everything after. Yeah, everything's ADR. I, I figured that, yeah. I mean... Uh. Just listening to it, I you know, for those who don't know, I have a degree in audio production, so yeah, I can hear soundtracks and tell when they're just 100% ADR'd, and the um, the environmental sound effects just sound fake as hell, like they were created in a studio and not shot live, so, but like I said, that's just one of many problems with this movie. I hated the characters, the environmentalists, they're so one note and dull like there's really no uh story arc for them no character arc um yes they do eventually because at first they want to save the crocodile which really irks the shit out of me because when the crocodile only killed their brown skin friend conchita everybody (laughs) still wants to to save uh the croc but then once the croc starts killing off 
um, you know, white people in the group, then everybody changes their mind and now they're like, oh, we got to kill this fucking crocodile. I'm not necessarily accusing the film of racism by any stretch of the imagination. But I'm saying, why did the death of Conchita not hold as much weight to them as the death of, like, uh, the photographer's friend? You know, there there was the one scene there where the, where the uh, croc pulled the boat out to the other side of the river, kind of separating the group, the uh, separating the guys from the girls. Um, I actually enjoy that scene. I, I thought it gives the crocodile itself kind of an intelligence factor that you're not expecting from these things. Not quite at the stupidity level of Jaws 4, where there's a shark that can hold a grudge, no. But the fact that this crocodile was smart enough to lure, because he actually stands right at the edge of the water with just his head sticking out so that purposely only a couple of the people can see him. And then once somebody acknowledges that, hey, there's a crocodile there, he dips down under the water, which makes the other people in the party go down to the water to search for it. So I, I, I don't want to explain the entire scene, but basically it's it, it's just, it's the one scene in the movie that makes the crocodile seem ultra intelligent. So I did appreciate that. Um, I hated the antagonist of this film, the judge, just such a pointless, like what the hell even makes him a judge? I mean, there's no courtroom. It's literally uh, like a, a title like mayor or governor would have made more sense, but they call him a judge Yet there's no courthouse, there's no police department. He claims that he only has one guy that he can, and with a single boat that he can send out to check potential crimes and things like that. But that's the police force in this swamp town. Um, I think they're in Santa Domingo, uh, Dominican Republic is where the movie takes place. So it just seems so hard to believe that there's no police force in a town that still looks like it has a couple hundred people in it, maybe a hundred to a couple hundred. So it, it just, you know, there's a lot of suspension of disbelief in this movie. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of Italian movies. When the Italian characters in the movie try to act American Devilfish is probably my biggest culprit of that. They literally try to claim that those people are from Florida when they're very obviously all Italian. Um, this one isn't as egregious as Devilfish, but the, you know, they still grab the most American-looking Italians that they could find. The two women, specifically, flat-out look American. So um, that's just, again, one of those things that I, I never liked about films, when they purposely film it so that it could be popular in a certain market. Obviously, there was a time when Italians wanted their movies to be successful in America, so they would do that. I mean... You know, anybody who's seen a lot of like the Italian jungle cannibal movies knows that most of those movies start in New York and then go to the jungle. So, uh, again, it's just a little pet peeve of mine when I see foreign movies trying to be American. There's no need for it. Be Italian. Make a good Italian crocodile movie and I will embrace it. But um, so, like I said, terrible dialogue, terrible characters, both protagonists and antagonists. Um the the fact that the uh, the hunter Joe actually tries to convince other people in the group that crocodiles hold grudges. He actually says he likes to insult crocodiles because it gets them mad. Because in one scene he calls the crocodile a polywog, and the main um, environmentalist Kevin calls him on it, polywog. And that's Joe's explanation that, yeah, I like to insult them because it gets them mad and it might, you know, get them to make a mistake. It's like, what? 
again, you're trying to, I understand the suspension of disbelief, but that's a little much. Um, how the hell does someone become the judge of a town and never, of a swamp town and never learn to swim? The judge died because he couldn't swim. Are you kidding me? That, that would be like the mayor of Amity in Jaws not being able to swim. It's like, it's your town. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't know. I don't. Now, despite all the negative stuff, oh, and apparently radioactive crocodiles are bulletproof, too. And these weren't just normal shots. These were fucking slugs that were per, that were yeah. specially made by, I guess, the, the gun dealer guy there in the swamp town. He actually made 12-gauge um, slugs, which are incredibly more powerful than your standard buckshot. And they're literally just bouncing off the crocodile. The crocodile is barely even flinching. Like a croc. Yeah, it just—it was a little bit too much. Now, with all the negative stuff I've said, there is still some good in this movie. Um, the pier attack when the crocodile attacks the little kids at the pier—I love that scene. That whole scene is very well made. It's got some good tension. You know, you, you start to feel like, oh, shit, a child is about to die. But then they subvert that when the child's father tries to save the child and he uh, ends up getting taken by the crocodile. One of my favorite shots in the movie is in this scene where the crocodile starts to swim away and he's got the guy in his mouth swimming away. The guy's bleeding profusely. It just gives you a good idea of how big this crocodile is because it is. A giant crocodile. I mean, it's a killer crocodile, but it's also fucking gigantic. They even say in the movie that most marine crocodiles only get to like 10 feet or 10 meters long, whereas this thing is over 20 meters long. Um, that also brings me back to something negative about the movie. Did you guys notice that the size of the crocodile seemed to change scene to scene? Yes. Like the scene where the crocodile attacks Foley's yacht Fucking crocodile looks like it's 20 feet tall, not long, tall, because Foley is riding in a yacht. Like, everybody else in the in the movie just has those little putt-putt boats that, you know, they, they look like they're going to fall apart any second, whereas Foley is riding around in a yacht, a dual, a double-level le, double yacht, and there's the one shot from within the yacht looking out at the crocodile, and the crocodile literally looks taller than the yacht, so... You know, little things like that might tend to take you out of it. But ultimately, though, I am going to say that my favorite part of the film is the crocodile itself. I actually really like this crocodile design. It's got bright yellow eyes with big pupils. So it looks just, to me, very menacing, almost insane. Like the, the crocodile has like a, maybe not a death wish, but just... Because this crocodile attacks indiscriminately. Anything that comes near it, human, animal, boat, it attacks it. So, I mean, this the the, uh, the toxic waste that's mentioned in the movie obviously heightened the aggression factor of an already ultra-aggressive animal. So, you know, that part of the story I did enjoy. And like I said, the shots of the crocodile itself, I liked. I liked the shots of its mouth open. Obviously, this is a big puppet, so there's, you know, they're not really able to do a lot of cool action sequences with it. But the few that they use it for, I thought worked for me. You know, anytime that it would bite a person, um, either bite one of their limbs off, an arm, a leg, whatever, I thought that stuff all looked good. 
I did have a problem with the fact that it seems like nobody in this movie has any kind of equilibrium because everybody falls out of the boats for no fucking reason. They try to make it sound like the crocodile is bumping the boat, but the boat doesn't move remotely. You hear a thump and then suddenly someone just jumps over, literally jumps over the edge. It doesn't even look like they're falling. So they definitely could have done a better job of convincing us these people are accidentally falling into the water and then getting attacked by the croc. Um, so, like I said, there's a lot of negatives about this film. There's a few positives that I did like. But ultimately, the acting, the dialogue, the score. And, the oh, I, I did mean to mention about the score. We've already talked about how the score is very much a ripoff of Jaws. He's definitely trying to emulate that tone and tension that the score of Jaws created. But then there were other scenes in the movie. There, there, was the, there was a scene in the movie right after Conchita died where the rest of the group is taking the boat back into town to try to find the authorities. Yeah. And the song that's playing is one of the most ridiculous Fisher-Price child song I've ever heard. I, like, I couldn't even describe it. Like, I, I literally rewound that scene two, three times to listen to that ridiculous song. So it's like... This score goes anywhere from Jaws ripoff to just plain terrible. So, I mean, you're, so that's just more, you know, negative shit that you're going to have to deal with. Blah, blah, blah. Um, our hero, he gets way too happy after he kills the crocodile. Like, he, he's literally jumping up and down like he just won the lottery. You know, as opposed to just a sense of relief and just fatigue because of everything that he's been through over the last couple of days. Nah, he's celebrating. He's yelling and cheering. He, he's all happy that Joe threw him that hat that Joe eventually lets him. <laughs> and then the fact that the whole thing was shooting the eggs. It's like he shoots three eggs that are, uh, he finds a clutch of three eggs on the shore of the river and he shoots them from the boat. And then I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. Do you really think those are the only eggs? And I'm not even talking about just the one at the end of the movie that we see hatching. Crocodiles, you know, they'll do multiple clutches of eggs when they're pregnant. So it just, it bothered me that these guys were supposedly environmentalists and experts on, you know, swamp creatures and, you know, the water table and everything else. But at times then they would just be really fucking stupid. The, the scene with the photographer, you know, uh, costing one of the members of the group his life because be, because he wanted to take a picture. And I understand that's a photographer's job. He even says that in the movie. It's my job. It's like, your job is to take pictures, not to endanger everyone in your fucking group. So just another selfish douchebag character in the movie. And really, just about all of the environmentalists, they, they just came out as like hollow, unlikable characters. Even the women, who really didn't do anything all that bad, were just so shallow and there wasn't much to their characters. Like I said, there's almost no character arc for anybody except maybe Kevin, as far as the environmentalists go. So, yeah, um, I, I'm, I'm going to try to cut this off here because I probably got a good 20 more minutes of complaints about this movie. But, um, yeah, for those who don't know, this was a first-time watch for me. Again, 
you know, watches like this tend to be detrimental when I watch something 20, 30 years after it came out. Because again, just like with Eaten Alive, had I seen this movie in 1989, I probably would have liked it a lot better. You know, I wasn't critiquing movies back then. It could have been, I could have just taken it at face value and been done with it. But now watching it for the first time in 2021, it's like all I see are problems. And I tried to highlight the positives of the film. Like I said, uh, the pier scene, uh, the scene where, like I said, the crocodile actually shows off its intelligence and separates the group. Um, some of the kills look really nice, much like, um, you know, eating alive with the croc, just pulling at people, jumping out of the water and grabbing them by like their torso or their head or whatever. Um, you get a, a lot more limb chops in this one, which is cool. I was kind of at times, too, I was questioning the motivation of the crocodiles, because, yes, I understand that crocodiles are very aggressive, but for the most part, they attack to eat. And when you see Conchita's body after she dies, the only part of her that's missing is like half of one of her legs. That's it. So it's like I'm sitting there questioning, why is this crocodile attacking all these people, but then not eating them? Because crocodiles famously eat every part of whatever they attack. They eat the clothes, they eat the bones, teeth, everything. And obviously they'll pass out whatever their body can't handle. But, you know, you rarely see a crocodile attack where the victim is just missing part of their leg. Usually they're missing very large parts of their body, multiple limbs, a head, part of their torso, things like that. So, but as the movie went along, I kind of accepted the fact that the radioactive material that was in the swamp was just kind of making these things unbelievably aggressive. So I just accepted the fact. But that early on in the movie, that bothered me because, you know, we only really get one death and that's the, the friend Conchita. Um, we only get one death before we get the gist of what's going on, before people realize there's a giant crocodile on the loose. It's because of the toxic waste that's being dumped in the water, blah, 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 blah. So my, my questions were answered. I just don't feel like they were answered quick enough. And, and I also understand that, you know, for a long time, I used to really, really study zoology. So I may know more than, you know, the average movie viewer about certain animals, behaviors, things like that. Um, not to toot my own horn by any stretch of the imagination. I am not an expert. Mrs. Venom is the veterinarian. She's the animal expert. Most of what I know, I learned from her. So, um, But yeah, like I said, all in all, a mildly fun movie. I mean, I can't even call it fun. I'll call it mildly fun because there are a couple of scenes that most people can still agree are pretty well done. Um, but like I said, the majority of the movie just did not work for me. And this was definitely a slog for me to get through. Um, I had to get through it in two, uh, sit downs because after about 40 minutes on the first watch, I was just getting so frustrated with the dialogue that I just had to stop and put something else on just to kind of wash my ears of that terrible dialogue and line delivery and everything else that was happening. So, um, as I said, uh, obviously Mike and Derek enjoy the movie more than me. I think they're probably going to be in the majority, whereas I'm definitely going to be in the minority in disliking this movie. Um, it still has a five on IMDb, and usually a five or above on IMDb for a horror film is pretty good. So obviously this movie has its fans, but unfortunately Mr. Venom is not one of them. Damn, I smoked like six cigarettes throughout the 
Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I had a feeling I was going to go off on a rant on this well, movie. <laughs> they also just made Killer Crocodile three while he was ranting. Mm. So. <laughs> <laughs> they definitely wrote the treatment at the very least while I was talking. <laughs> They're like, we got to fix some things up. So then I'm all <laughs> dislike this one. <laughs> yeah, and, and like I said, I do want to specifically say I don't hate this movie. Hate is a very strong word. I dislike this movie greatly. Um, it does have its positives. I've seen movies that are literally 90 minutes of bullshit, garbage. Those are the kind of movies that I hate. I don't hate this movie. It's just not for me. Ironically enough, I was thinking, Mike, why didn't you pair this with actually Toby Hooper's Crocodile? <laughs> I know. I thought about that afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> oh, yeah. Unfortunately, yeah, it didn't, didn't seem like I had a great time. With these watches, Eaten Alive has its charm, but it also has its problems. And Killer Croc, yeah, I just couldn't really get behind it. So. Well, well, it is Mike's picks, you know, you know, you know. <laughs> Nothing against Mike's picks. He's, he's infamous yeah. for picking the Postman on Theme Warriors. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, don't you dare ever make me watch a Kevin Costner movie. <laughs> All right. Well, if that wraps up our thoughts on Killer Crocodile, then that's going to also wrap up episode 29 of No More Ruin Hell. The next one's the big number 30. So uh, before we get out of here, though, it's time to let everyone else know where they can hear us and what we've been up to. Venom, what do you got? Okay. My throat's starting to hurt, so I'm going to try to make this <laughs> short. That last rant got me. <laughs> okay, so um, obviously the sidecast for this show is, of course, No More Room in Hell presents Fresh Cuts. Mike, uh, myself, and Mr. Donna Nelly will look at the newest of the new. On the latest episode, we looked at Blumhouse's recent horror release, The Vigil. And on the next episode, which records in a couple of days, we're going to be looking at the latest Lance Hendrickson film, the Dead of Night. Now, I don't know if he's actually a star of the film or if he has a five-minute scene because that seems to be the trend with Lance Hendrickson lately, but he does have top billing on the movie poster. And, of course, you guys know I don't watch trailers, so I have no idea what level of involvement he's going to have on that. But, like I said, that'll be on the next episode of Fresh Cuts, available on the Dark Discussions Podcast Network. Tomorrow night, I will be recording the next episode of In the Mic of Madness, where we're finally going to go ahead and take a look at our uh, two technological horror films, and they are uh, the recently released Willy's Wonderland, which we talked about a little bit earlier in the, in the episode, and we paired that with Maximum Overdrive. Oh, uh, boy. Yeah, exactly. So... Um, let's see, on It's Not Horror, okay, our latest episode, we looked at 1980s Airplane, the classic slapstick comedy uh, from David and Jerry Zucker. That was probably the most fun I've ever had on It's Not Horror, okay. Just, we had such a blast. Even though one of the people on the show hates Zucker movies, like Top Secret Naked Gun, The Police Squad, uh, all, you know, Airplane, all of these types of movies. This one co-host on my on that show absolutely hates all those movies, but we even brought him around a little bit. So I won't say who. Hopefully that'll add some mystery to the episode, but that is the latest episode of It's Not Horror OK, uh, also available on the Dark Discussions podcast network. 
Um, we finally, Derek and I and Don, are finally able to plan our next episode of Underwater Kaiju from Outer Space. We're going to be recording a week from tonight. And we will be looking at Gamera versus uh, Baragon, I believe is how it's pronounced. Right, Derek? Baragon, Baragon yeah. Baragon. Baragon. Yeah. yeah. Something like that. So, um, And then, of course, we will continue our retrospective of the original Ultraman series with episode 24. That will be available on Legion Podcasts, I would imagine, sometime next week. So look out for that. And um, Mike and I had one of our shows return from the dead from over two years since we recorded our last episode. And that is, of course, Theme Warriors with Mr. Doug Tilly and uh, Iris. And uh, on our first episode back, we looked at sequels. And the theme actually fits our return episode, too, which is nice. And the theme was sequels that came long after their previous installment. So... You know, we look at stuff that has like 16 year gaps in between sequels all the way up to 35 year gaps for our biggest gap. So uh, look out for that. And that is also available on the Dark Discussions podcast network. And the last thing I'll talk about was something that I briefly mentioned earlier, but I actually spoke about the film in my What We've Been Watching. And that is, of course, Alfred Hitchcock's Rope. I do a full feature review of that with Dan Chase and Lacey Liu on the latest episode of Cut to the Chase, which, according to them, should be available sometime uh, the middle of this week or towards the end of the week. And that is, uh, what's the date today? March 7th. So look for that sometime around the 10th or 12th. And um, that's probably all from me, Mike. All right, Derek, what do you have for the people to listen to? Well, I'll, I'll make it nice and easy and short <laughs> since Ben mentioned one of my shows. And I'll just mention the show that's kind of active right now, and that, of course, is Cinema Attack, uh, where, you know, we just recorded an episode last night looking at some natural disaster movies, ironically enough. We each picked one for the table, and, you know, it was an interesting mixture of films. Uh, we did Deep Impact, The Core. Oh God, speaking of shut your brain off movies, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, and uh, The Wave from 2015, the Norwegian natural disaster film. Uh, look out for that sometime, maybe next week or the week after. Not sure. It depends on uh, the schedules of when we we're, we're trying to release shows a little before the other show just got posted. But uh, that should be out, and we're like we've teased, uh, Uli Bull is coming after that. That should <laughs> be fun. And I also have a episode in the can of uh, the podcast Under the Steers, William Castle Collection uh, series I'm doing with Duncan over there. That should be out. Not sure this week or next week. I'm not sure how he's putting them out. But uh, we did William Castle's Homicidal. Uh, so that should be out sometime in the next two weeks from when you hear this. So it could be out now. Just check out those shows. I have fun recording those William Castle box set collections. Sweet, sweet. Um, yeah, Venom pretty much covered everything I've done. So, um, other than the, uh, what, 22 shots episode we guessed it on? Yeah, a couple weeks ago now, three weeks ago. Yeah, Terror Vision and Video Dead. 
Terrorvision. Do 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 Terrorvision. Yep. All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening to episode twenty-nine. It's time to descend down back to the lake of fire where we will fry. And as in the words of Joe, I always like to have a cold one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We will try to avoid any killer crocs down in hell. So thank you everyone for listening. We will catch you next time. Adios. That was exhilarating that episode, guys. Was it? Yeah. Venom. Yeah.